the United Nations Digital Divide in Digital Transformation, Change Management in Airlines, Customer Rights and Responsibilities in Digital Transformation, and Top 4 Lessons from ERP Contracting. Those are just some of the topics we're going to cover today in episode number 111 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 111. My name is Eric Kimberling, CEO and founder of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world with their digital transformation journeys. And this podcast is Transformation Ground Control, covering everything related to digital transformation, including program management, change management, digital strategy, business process improvement, basically everything you need to know about digital transformation. So thanks for being here today. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited for this episode. Likewise, I'm excited too. And, and thank you to the audience for being here. We've got a great episode for you today. We're going to cover uh, our usual opening segment of questions from social media. We're going to take some questions and, and provide some answers, hopefully, uh, to those to those questions that we get from social media. We're going to cover some uh, hot topics in the opening segment as well, including the digital divide in the digital divide in digital transformation in the UN or the United Nations. And then we're going to also going to talk about change management in airlines. Uh, later in the show, we're going to shift gears and have a interactive session talking about customer rights and responsibilities. So in other words, what do customers have a right to when they go through a digital transformation and what are they responsible for? Um, so we're going to have a great conversation around that later. And then finally, we'll have a guest on our third segment, uh, Marcus Harris, who's a prominent software attorney who does a lot of contract review and negotiation on behalf of organizations uh, contracting with software vendors. So we're gonna have him on the show uh, talking about the top four lessons of ERP contracts and contracting. So before we get to those other segments though, let's start off with uh, the Q&A and the, uh, the hot topics you've got for us, Kyler. Yeah, well, let's talk about some current events. So last week we talked about South Park, which was kind of lighthearted and digital transformation. Um, so this week I kind of wanted to bring it uh, a little bit more focused on development of digital transformation and some current events around um, airlines. So let's start with the UN. Um, they're having a conference right now about economic development and a big topic of conversation is closing the digital divide between countries that are the least developed countries and then countries that are the most developed countries and how they go about doing that. And I know you do a lot um, and third stage does a lot in developing areas as well and helping countries that are, or helping um, companies that are in countries that are coming into new access points and new technology to kind of decide how um, that's going to work. So I wanted to get your feedback on um, these programs. So they did a study, um, the UN International Telecommunications Union, and it shows that there's no signs of narrowing that gap. It's just getting progressively worse. Um, with about 407 million and least developed countries, they call it LDCs, 
um, we're using the internet in 2022 and seven 120 million people are still offline. So to kind of just give you the, the overall impact of that. The challenge of bringing these communities online that they're trying to um, troubleshoot has been more complex than simply building those physical connections or that infrastructure, uh, and they're struggling to make that happen. And since the, the latter half of this episode is kind of um, harder, I would say, on our software vendor partners. I wanted to bring some kind of awareness and get your feedback on companies like Microsoft that actually put quite a bit of philanthropic money and resources into helping these less developed areas um, actually utilize technology specifically since more than 50% of this population is young people under 18 um, that they focus on. Uh, so shedding some light kind of on those programs and, and running through that. So mostly I wanted to talk about obviously the importance of this this overall movement, but get your your insight into is there anything that these young people can do to make steps towards becoming a digital native? Or is there ways in which we as a community in digital transformation can help support kind of narrowing that gap in our smaller, much smaller circle of influence? Yeah, I don't know that I have a good answer for that, um, you know, as far as how to, how to solve the social um, challenge that that poses and presents. But it is a interesting reminder, though, that digital transformation or, or digital technologies, I should say, are such an integrated necessity or they're becoming such a necessity even in developing countries. If you think about commerce and banking and certainly social interactions, and there's so many aspects of our life that are tied to digital technologies and accessibility to those technologies uh, and connectivity, um, that it, it's a good reminder of that. So I don't, I don't have an answer how to solve it, but I, I do think it's a very interesting challenge that, that, that is apparent in the world today. Well, if you want to follow this conference or if you have any comments on how we solve huge economic unsolvable social problems, sometimes definitely um, check out the UN's website. You can actually follow all of the keynotes and see um, in thought leaders about how to create that infrastructure. Um, and then also, if you want to share any comments here about kind of developing countries or even developing industries, I think sometimes are very similar without having the challenges of obvious infrastructure and bandwidth broadband, those sort of connectivity pieces. Uh, but it's definitely an interesting conference to kind of follow our, our global audience, which we have here at Third Stage and are very grateful for, and how that has affected overall digital transformation in enterprise and public sector. Yeah, super interesting. And who knew there's a whole conference dedicated to that too? That's pretty interesting yeah. too. There's a whole program actually dedicated to it. I tried not to go too down the rabbit hole, but you know, I, I always... Um, believe in the power of technology. So it's something that I'm super passionate about is understanding not only you know, domestically, but globally, how do, how do we make sure that that access is given? And it also reminds us in countries like the US to be grateful, right? Gratitude for that access um, yeah. as well. So That's a good point. We do take it for granted yeah. at times for sure. So moving on, shifting gears, um, we've seen a lot of, of global talk around the airline industry. We've covered a variety of different system outages from bad experiences to the FAA, which is actually a, a domestic um, government body here in the U.S. that also had system outage. So we kind of covered the technology side. I wanted to talk a little bit about the change man management side of the airline industry and how they're struggling with that. 
So recently, they've been trying to dig into globally um, at global conferences and domestically here in the U.S. What is the problem with the airline industry, not only from a technical side, but also you see these very highly visible um, issues with with overall mechanics on the flight, bird crashes. Um, you know, you see the the social emotional piece of customers kind of losing it, if you will, on an airplane. We've all been in that experience where you enter an airport and it's like all societal norms are completely gone and, you know, people are, are kind of nutty. So um, that fact of it, they were trying to kind of solve for that. And some of the, the bigger pieces that they had for that was the actual impact of the training and kind of user adoption and development when it comes to positions like pilots and flight attendants and prepping them for this huge demand after a, a lull within their their overall um, demand because of COVID. So one of the issues there is getting the staff trained and prepared and making sure that they are forward thinking the massive change that their industry has experienced. So being a change expert, I thought we could kind of talk through some key tactics when you do have a really huge shift in your industry or overall business processes and or technology failure, what are some just basic steps that you can make sure that you're evaluating and you're, you're activating to kind of get in front of something that is so enormous as kind of organizational change management or even industry change management? Well, I think the first thing is to understand the the roadblocks and the barriers to change. You know, what are the, what are the root causes of the change? And in the case of airline industry, you have um, an industry that's sort of a legacy industry. It's been around for a long time. So there's a lot of highly tenured people. It's highly regulated. So there's some limitation on the amount of flexibility you have as an organization. And then there's also unions, uh, labor unions. So you've got um, some limitations on how you manage employees and what they can and can't do and their roles and responsibility within the organization. So those are just three, you know, sort of glaring obstacles to change or potential obstacles to change in the airline industry. But for any organization, you want to understand what are those either obstacles to change or sources of resistance to change. And you want to anticipate what those sources of resistance are so that you can get ahead of that. So I think the answer really comes down to case by case, sort of, it depends um, to go with our drinking game of anytime I say the word, it depends, uh, everyone take a drink. Um, but that's part of what the, you know, part of why we do an organizational assessment for our clients is to really understand the culture of the organization. We look at what the general strategy and objectives of the organization are, what you're trying to accomplish with your digital transformation. And then you craft a change strategy that's, that's tailored to where you are today, where you're headed and what the landmines and pitfalls are along the way. Absolutely. Well, definitely a really interesting conversation. I, In prepping for this interview, I watched an interview with um, Captain Sullenberger. If, if you remember, he did the Miracle on the Hudson landing um, that was actually caused by a flock of geese. So for those of you who don't, don't know this story, apparently birds are a huge risk when it comes to airline mechanics, which I was not aware of. Um but recently in Havana, there had been a flight that had actually had contact with the bird, had to turn around, but the smoke filled the cockpit. And now that we have all these videos and assets um, and access, right, of people of camera phones, you see kind of that fear real time. But I wasn't aware that he landed on the Hudson with those broken engines because of a flock of geese. 
So really it's, you know, birds are just out of control. So <laughs> they're so pretty and cute on one hand, but they create mayhem <laughs> on the other. So <laughs> I know. But if you do have any thoughts, um we this in this um episode is really interactive. So if you have kind of feedback on what you think change management tactics or overall management of a very volatile or an influx industry that you've had experience with, definitely um, type that in the comments. Just as a reminder, I do go back and pull all of the comments so that we can discuss them on this episode. And we've had actually a lot of great ideas for live streams for hot topics from the audience. So um, feel free to, to kind of comment on that. But let's let's switch gears into some Q&A. Sounds good. Sounds really good. So I'm I'm double fisting today. I couldn't get all of the long questions in the question jar, so that's why um, my phone is out too. But we'll start with our our question jar that we have. Just a reminder: if you're new here, I do go and pull all the questions for Eric on his social media accounts: YouTube, LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram. You can follow him on on all of those accounts, and. Um, and I pull all the questions so that we can ask him in real time. He's never seen these, which is what makes it really fun. For you. <laughs> Less so for me. Okay. So this is a question. If you remember from last episode, you had a kind of a, a viral video about a digital transformation that we had internally at Third Stage that failed or wasn't as, you know, maximum efficiency that we were looking for. So this person asked, I'm wondering what measures you took to ensure that this oversight that occurred won't happen again because okay i'm not done so hold on <laughs> because of, it's a two it's a two sticky noter so just oh, I see. <laughs> because of some of the issues um you re, you experience are exactly the type of thing that you help clients move through so i'd like to know how you expect to prevent that in the future yeah well i, I think two things i point out in the the video is one is it's uh as much as i hate to say it it's it's easier to help others through transformation than it is to apply those lessons to yourself. And I think that's a human uh, flaw uh, for for certain. And that, so that's one aspect is, you know, we're more focused on our clients, making sure they're successful that in this case, I think we sort of neglected our own needs as it related to a transformation. But this, the second thing that's even bigger is that this one was in my mind, a really minor uh, transformation. We weren't, you know, we weren't replacing any business process or workflow based systems like an ERP system or a, you know, CRM system or anything like that. This was a simply a, a hosting provider change, right? So, you know, on the surface, it sounds super easy. And that's why I think this lesson is so fascinating because it, it, it really should have been easy in my mind, you know, in hindsight, obviously that was a mistake to assume that, that just simply switching hosting providers for your Microsoft Outlook servers. Um, it, it just, it, it had, I had no idea, nor did I suspect that there would be any sort of risk to that other than just maybe completely losing access or completely losing the data, which that wasn't the problem. The, the technic, the, the core technical stuff wasn't the problem. The problem was just the little, the tiny little nuances, the tiny little breaks in the the new environment, the, in the tiny little impacts it had that sort of created a domino cascade effect. So to answer the question though, I'd say, you know, the bigger the transformation, I'd say in general, you sort of, I think that the heightened awareness of risk is, you know, makes it doesn't solve all the problems, but you're, you're more, you're expecting challenges. You're expecting there to be risk and you're looking for those risks when it's a smaller or it's perceived to be a less material transformation there, the fallacy or the, the flaw that we fell into the trap we fell into is, is thinking that it was simpler than it really was. 
Um, even though it was less complex than a big ERP or a big digital transformation, it was still complex, more more complex than we thought. So I say the the measures are um, the same. Um, you know, we apply the same measures for all of our clients, but we just didn't apply some of those measures to us, unfortunately. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it that's that's really well said. And the fact that the reason that you engage independent consultants as an organization and the lesson learned is because many times it's hard to see all the opportunities within your own organization because you have that tainted a lens because you're a part of that, which is not a bad thing, right? But yeah. fresh eyes are always helpful. Yeah, absolutely. All righty. That outside perspective. Yeah. Okay. Hi, Eric. I always love the ones that start like that. I know you were talking about Odoo, but how does it compare to 202 Enterprise that doesn't require the same amount of resources in IT? And I think I, I'm interpreting this question right, but let's talk a little bit about open source and IT resources and how you need to be mindful of what that looks like in going into a low-code or no-code system. Yeah, so open source um, systems allow for for more flexibility in many ways because you have more more control and more flexibility with the software, and you can you can sort of um, you can access the code and make changes to the software in ways that you don't you either can't or it's more difficult to do with some of the the more commercial off the shelf systems. Um, but with that comes a darker side, which is that, you know you do have to have IT staff that can maintain that system. Um, so, you know, low code environments are just general configuration environments. You're going to have, um, you know, end users that can manage a lot of that stuff. But here in the case of, uh, a, a, uh, open source system, you, you need a little bit slightly more technical prowess or, or, uh, capability to be able to manage that. Definitely. Um, and it, you know, that in the evaluation process is super important, right? Is understanding those different roles and responsibilities, like with any digital transformation. Yeah. Yeah, so this one is actually from one of your streams on, on YouTube. Um, and he says, Eric, I'm wondering if you can give us an example of one of the most complex digital transformation failures you've been involved with. So I commented back to this user and I said, there's a lot to choose from. So I was wondering which one you would choose. Well, I did a video. I wish I could recall what I talked about in the video, but I do recall doing a video that was the most difficult digital transformations in my career. Um, not that they were all necessarily failures, um, but I'd say, you know, probably the most complex failure that I've seen or been involved with as an expert witness was the, uh, the waste management versus SAP, uh, lawsuit. And that was a big lawsuit about 15 years ago that involved waste management, which is, uh, I think North America's largest waste and recycling company. Uh, they had tried to implement SAP project failed. Um, they sued for you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in damages, and we were retained as an expert in that case. Um, so, you know, we weren't a contributing, we weren't a contributing uh, uh, actor in that failure. We came in after the fact to be an expert witness, but that was a super complicated case. Um, one that involved the system integrator, obviously a software vendor, a big, large, complex, highly political organization, and just a lot of weird <laughs> internal dynamics that I can't talk about in great detail because of confidentiality. Um, but that was probably the most complex, the most difficult failure I've seen was that one. Partly, and part of it too, you know, I have a bit of bias on that one just because it was my first expert witness case. It is one of the biggest expert witness cases that I've been involved with. So it, it just, the magnitude of it, the visibility of it, the complexity of it all was, was, uh, was, uh, very memorable. 
Is it safe to say that the more complex the system, the more complex the failure? Or would you say that that's not true? It can contribute, but I'd say the more complex the organization, mm -hmm. the more complex the failure. So this was a very complex organization. There were, you know, you think about waste and recycling. It's a, that's a very unique industry. There's not a ton of companies throughout the world that do it. There, there's more than one. Obviously, there's a there's a fair number, but it's not like manufacturing where there's just a ton of manufacturers out there and a ton of lessons learned and a mature technologies to deal with that sort of capability or that functionality. With waste and waste management, it's a different story. So there's not mature technologies to deal with that. Plus, it's a you know, it's a unique industry. Plus it's a highly political industry. And that company in particular was very political and has some organizational issues that were well beyond digital transformation. They had issues way beyond just implementing new technology. Absolutely. I know you and Marcus will kind of go into that um, in our third segment here. Um, but just as a reminder, if you do have more questions for Eric or the third stage team, you can go ahead and pop those in the comment section wherever you're watching. We go through and aggregate and pull all of those and ask Eric and team um, all of the great questions. Specifically, if you have a question about a system, I do go to our system expert and then I comment on um, that. So the, a lot of times that's why you see, see me in there too talking. Um, about specific systems. So, but I'm excited to get to this conversation because I think it's one of the most important live streams you've really ever done, even though it was just you, you did a solo stream. Um, so at, at the end, definitely stay tuned because I'm going to pull all the comments and ask Eric some additional questions that he wasn't able to get to in that stream. Yeah. So in this conversation, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about customer rights and responsibilities after the break. We're going to come back and take some audience questions. We'll talk about customer rights and responsibilities. Um, and really the idea here is that uh, you have certain rights that often are violated, I'd say, by by system integrators and vendors, but you also have responsibilities that um, a lot of organizations neglect. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. And that was the intent of the conversation was to talk about if you're an implementing organization going through digital transformation, what are your rights and what are you responsible for? And how can you make sure to keep those things top of mind? And then later in the episode two, we'll have Marcus Harris on who will be a, a good segue or good transition from that rights and responsibilities uh, coming back to failures in that question we just talked about. Um, we'll, we'll talk about, uh, he'll be on to talk about the top four lessons of ERP contracting. And in that conversation, we, we'll talk about uh, failures and what could lead to failures uh, in the contracting uh, process as well. So we'll uh, take a quick break. When we come back, we'll uh, shift gears and talk about that conversation regarding customer rights and responsibilities. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 111. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. And uh, we're excited for this next conversation. We're going to talk about customer rights and responsibilities and what it means to your project and some of the things you should be thinking about or have top of mind as you navigate your digital transformation. But what I want to do today is talk about what is it that the implementing organizations have a responsibility to do on one hand. So on one hand, I want to cover what what is it that implementing organizations are responsible for? In other words, what are the things that they can't get out of or shouldn't get out of um, because they're responsible for, for ensuring a certain amount of the critical success factors for a digital transformation. But on the other hand, I also want to cover what rights customers have. So implementing organizations have a certain have certain rights that they aren't often afforded. And uh, I'll talk about some of those dynamics here uh, within the industry that contribute to some of those lack of rights or lack of empowerment uh, for organizations that are going through digital transformation. So I really look forward to to the conversation here today. Um, so again, two different angles we're going to cover rights, which is what are those things that a customer has a right to that they're not getting? And then on the other hand, what are the responsibilities, the things that you can't abdicate, you can't just outsource, these are things that you have to own. And if you look at both sides of that equation, that's largely why so many of these projects fail is because organizations aren't given rights by their software vendors. Software vendors in many ways are taking too much power or taking too much control of implementation. So I'm going to talk about what some of those dynamics are, what some of those variables are that you, you can and should control. And then I'm also going to talk about the responsibilities. What are the things that you're responsible for that no one else can be, that you as an implementing organization need to be responsible for? And lastly, uh, but certainly not least important, I also want to make sure we cover today what you think. What are your thoughts around what are the rights and the responsibilities of organizations? So I want to start off with rights. So I want to maybe take it from a perspective of what are those things that you as an organization, if you're implementing new technology, let's say it's an ERP system or CRM or HR system, supply chain, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter what technology you might be deploying. This is a technology agnostic conversation for sure. But what are those rights you have as an implementing organization? And I'll kind of go through five that I've that I've identified or want to use as a starting point here. And then I, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Um, but the first thing that I have on my list here is that it's, it's your digital transformation. So that's a really important context setting backdrop that's important to, to unpack a bit, which is that when you're going through a transformation, a lot of times there's a feeling that the system integrator owns the project. It's their project because they're the experts and they are the ones that come in to deploy technology. But at the end of the day, this is your business. Your business is what is leaning on this new technology to make it better. And so there's key decisions and control and ownership that you have a right to have uh, for uh, any given project. Um, we have we have one client in particular, just to give you a quick backstory of, of sort of an extreme example of this right not being adhere to or being a, a failure point for one of our clients, we have, we have a very large client right now that's going through a large uh, tier one ERP implementation uh, involving SAP, and they have a large system integrator that's helping them implement. And one of the interesting dynamics that we see with this client is that this big system integrator has insisted, and they have it actually written in their contract, that they are in control of the project. They own the, they own the project, they determine the staffing, they determine how the project's gonna go and the client agreed to it. And so that's creating a lot of problems because first of all, you don't have ownership of the project when you've outsourced and you've given that much control to a system integrator. 
And second of all, it it's not, you've got a lack of alignment. You, you have a problem here because you've got an outside third party who doesn't know your business and what you're trying to accomplish, who's trying to force fit technology in a way that they're used to deploying that doesn't necessarily align with the client's interests. And that's exactly what this particular client is going through. And this might be an extreme example in this case, because it's, it's actually a contractual um, situation where they've actually agreed to it contractually to allow the system integrator to have more control than they probably should. And most clients don't go that far. But what we do commonly see is organizations give and cede too much control to clients and they don't take ownership or, or they don't have the ability to take ownership. Or in some cases, they don't even think to tell themselves that this is our transformation. This is our project. We're the ones that should be determining how this project goes. Yes, we should be leaning on third parties and experts as needed, but ultimately you have to own it and you have to you uh, have to treat it as your transformation. So that's a right that organizations I I think should have, which is to own the transformation and have it be their transformation. It sounds super simple, super basic. It's, it sounds like a no brainer as I'm saying it, but it's fascinating to me how few organizations recognize that and actually take action accordingly and manage accordingly. Somewhat similar to that uh, whole thread of this being your transformation and the implementing organization having a right to own the project. Similar to that is a, a second thing on my list here, which is you decide the pace and the tempo. So if you are going through a project, let's just say you, you've selected a, an ERP system and you get a proposal from a software vendor system integrator that says, we can implement this technology in 18 months. Um, they probably can implement technology in 18 months. That's not really the question. The question is, how well can this technology be implemented within your organization to actually be consumed by and adopted by your organization? And in this case, when a proposal or when a software vendor suggests something like 18 months, it's typically going to take a lot longer than that to get full adoption and actually get a real implementation in place. Not because the technology can't be configured and built in that amount of time, but because the organization itself typically can't go through change that quickly. And so what oftentimes happens is you get a system integrator or software vendor who comes in and says, hey, we can do this in 18 months or whatever the number is or whatever the duration is. And organizations say, okay, that sounds great. Let's do it in 18 months. And then they quickly realize this is a lot of change. This is typically moving too fast than our organization is capable of moving. And the technology is moving at a pace that's faster than we can change our people and our processes. And they tend to not want to or don't feel confident enough to slow things down and say, look, we need to slow this down. We might need to downsize this, the team to move at a slower pace. And maybe this ends up taking 24 months or 36 months or whatever the number is. Organizations don't feel comfortable doing that, partly because they've already committed now to an 18 month duration or whatever the unrealistic duration was. And now it's difficult to backpedal from that. And so it's really important though, to set that pace and tempo in a way that makes sense to you as an organization, because at the end of the day, this is again, your business, your organization, and if you go too fast and too aggressive in your transformation, it's your operations that are at risk. The, the software vendor and system integrator are not at risk. If your business fails or if you are unable to ship product or satisfy customer demand, it's you that's on the hook for that. So ultimately, you have to treat the project accordingly and make sure that you're managing risk and, and managing the project in a way that is uh, palatable to your organization. And again, this is a situation where you have a right as an organization to determine what that duration is. It's not the software vendor. It's not the system integrator. They can make suggestions and proposals, 
but ultimately you have to decide and define what is the right pace, the right tempo, the right strategy for us as an organization. The third thing that organizations have a right to, in my opinion, is that they have a right to know what the software can really do. And this sounds again, like a basic no brainer sort of a thing. It might sound like common sense, but this is a really important overlooked one in that software vendors themselves oftentimes don't fully understand what their technology can and can't do, especially today where a lot of the big software vendors are in the midst of a transition of moving all their legacy systems on premise to the cloud. So you've got these systems out there that are not fully baked. They're not fully developed. They're not fully mature. And you as an organization have a right to know where those gaps are and every system out there. And I, when I say every, I, I literally mean every, I'm not exaggerating. Every system out there has deficiencies. It has gaps. It has problems, not because it's a poorly written software, not because the software vendor is bad, nothing like that. It's because no one system can handle everything you, you're going to need it to do. So it's going to have deficiencies. It's going to have gaps. And especially today where you've got these cloud solutions that are still being developed and still trying to catch up to decades of on-premise functionality that had been developed over decades and billions of dollars of R&D. Now you've got these gaps that need to be exposed. You need to know what those gaps are and you have a right to know what those gaps are because you have to figure out how you're going to, how you're going to run your business without that functionality that you might be looking for. So really knowing and understanding and getting an honest assessment of what the software can and can't do is something that I would put in my sort of customer bill of rights, if you will, you know, these are the, the deal breakers of the things that every organization has a right to. Similar to that, the fourth thing on my list is right to transparency. So every organization has a right to transparency in terms of what the system integrator is doing, how they're staffing the project, why they're staffing the project they are, what their approach is, what their deliverables are. Um, there tends to be a dynamic in the industry and i was part of this dynamic so um, i'm i'm throwing stones at glass houses in some ways because i was part of this uh, machinery early in my career but when i was part of the the big five or the big four consulting firms um, and this is still the case today we see it all the time there's there's an art that these big system integrators have have mastered which is to sort of create a dynamic of don't look behind the curtain, let us do our job, let us create the technology, let's build the technology, let us deploy it. We're the experts. You hired us to be the experts, trust us. And to some degree, you do want to trust. Obviously you're hiring someone because you trust them, you want to partner with them. But in my opinion, oftentimes, more often than not, system integrators and vendors take that too far. They take it way too far and really don't have that accountability and transparency that should go along with a healthy, partnership and a healthy transformation. And so that's another right that organizations have that they don't capitalize on or they don't insist on, in my opinion, enough in the industry, which is a right to have that transparency into what a system integrator is doing. You know, why do you have, for example, if, if you've got a, a large implementation and a, and a system integrator has 50 people, let's say full-time on a project, let's question why are there 50 people? Do we need all 50 of those? Are we overstaffing? Are we trying to move too quickly with two with with more people when in fact maybe a lower staffing level over a longer duration might make more time? Let's talk through that. And so those are the sorts of dynamics and conversations that really need to happen that don't happen enough in the industry, but yet implementing organizations do have the right to that. And then finally, a fifth one that's very consistent with the others that I've mentioned so far in terms of the, the theme here is that Implementing organizations have a right to manage their system integrators and their vendors. 
So in other words, the vendors in the system in your areas don't have a right to control your project. That's just not their right. Unless for some reason, as in the case that I just gave or the example I gave a moment ago, if you've agreed to it contractually, that's a different story. I would highly encourage you not to agree to that contractually, but assuming you haven't, um, then you have a right to manage the system integrator. You have a right to manage them. They don't manage you. Um, and again, this is a hard one because they're the experts. You're not. They go through transformations all the time. You don't. And so the question then becomes, well, how do I do that? How, do, how can I manage the system integrator if I'm not the expert? And again, the point here is that I'm not suggesting that every organization needs to become experts in digital transformation in order to manage their system integrators. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that even though they are the experts, you do need to manage them. You need to ask questions. You need to challenge them. You need to hold them accountable. You need to put PMO in place, program management and governance in place to manage and put guardrails in place for those system integrators. Uh, you have a right to put quality assurance mechanisms in place. You have a right to bring in other third parties if you need to, to augment what the system integrator can't do or shouldn't be doing. So that's another dynamic that's very unhealthy in the industry, but I challenge organizations that are going through transformations to push back against it in that there's a, a common uh, line of thinking, which is that if I'm the system integrator, I own this project. Uh, you don't have a right to manage me. You don't have a right to bring in other third parties. You don't have a right to put program management or governance and controls in place. And that is absolutely not true. You have every right in the world to do that. So that's that's one thing that is is important too, that oftentimes gets, gets overlooked. So th these are my five. I'm starting with the rights part of it. And then I'm going to get to responsibilities in the, the second half of our conversation here today um, in terms of sort of flipping a little bit right now. I'm being a little hard on the system uh, integrators and the vendors talking about the things that they sort of violate in terms of customer rights. But I also want to flip the switch here in a moment. And I'm going to talk about what are the things that a lot of organizations or too many organizations push off or outsource or abdicate responsibility for, try to wash their hands clean of that they shouldn't be. So I'm not here just to blame vendors. I'm also going to point some more blame at, at uh, implementing organizations here in a moment. We're here having a conversation about customer rights and responsibilities and what it means to your digital transformation. We have a lot more to cover. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 111. We're here having an interactive conversation with the audience about customer rights and responsibilities in digital transformation. Um, so I want to get to uh, just a few comments that have already started to roll in since we started going through my, my points or my initial thoughts on what customer rights are in a digital transformation. And the first one I want to cover here is from Sam, uh, who's joining us from Spain. And that customer or companies just have the right to expect that implementing consultants are properly trained and not just on their job as a chargeable resource to gain experience. 
So in other words, you have a right to have consultants on your project that know what they're doing, that you're not paying to train. And I'll give you a quick backstory about my experience, which again, this is, this is sort of hard to admit given everything I'm talking about right here and everything that we at third stage stand for. But early in my career, when I was first starting out, I was one of those consultants that just got off the school bus, just got certified as an SAP consultant. And I was coming in to do um, some SAP change management work, but I was learning most of what I was doing on the job and I was billing a high rate by the hour and the client was paying for me to learn. Now, of course, every consultant has a learning curve and a trajectory in their career and some are more experienced than others. You're always going to have that. Uh, but there's a fine line between, you know, paying a junior resource who's not as experienced compared to a more senior resource that charges more. That's part of why there's a delta in the rates. But even if you're paying a relatively low rate for a junior consultant, you have a right to have consultants that know what they're doing. And if you don't, then that's where you start to push back and say, do I need to be paying for this consultant or why am I paying for this consultant to learn on the job? And maybe just taking it a step further, at the risk of sounding a bit micromanagey, if that's a word, which I know it's not, um, but if, if you have a, a consulting team on a project from your system integrator, you have a right to challenge and to know and have visibility to what the roles and responsibilities of all those consultants are, what their skill sets are, uh, ensuring that they're the right fit for the project. Um, it's, it's, it's so common that you see in the industry that you have consultants that are either incompetent or incapable of doing their jobs, or they're just not good cultural fits with your organization or they create conflict with the team. And there's a sense of helplessness that organizations have like, well, I can't do anything about it because that's my partner. I've got a contract with my system integrator for them to do A, B, and C. And that's why, I, I encourage organizations all the time to step in and and uh, to challenge and to shape and help mold what the team looks like. Um, again, it's not your system integrator's project, it's your project and you determine uh, how that's gonna go. It's sort of like if you're getting work done on your house and you hired a contractor and um, you were paying by the hour and you didn't have any sort of guarantee that the cost was gonna be within any sort of reasonable uh, time frame. If you had say 20 people show up on the job and you noticed half of them standing around and you knew you were paying for all these resources, you probably start to question, why am I paying for these 10 people to stand around and do nothing? Uh, but yet when we're an organization and we go through transformation, we don't have that same mentality or that same confidence in challenging it. And so that's one thing that I always uh, encourage organizations to do is to gain some confidence and to uh, build that strength to be able to, to challenge an SI and not in a combative way, but in a constructive way to say, look, we need to understand why these junior resources are on the project, or even if it's not a junior resource, it may be the number of resources. It may be, uh, the, the, the cultural fit or lack thereof. You can challenge those things and you should be challenging those things because again, this is your business and only, you know, your business and what you're trying to accomplish. Here's another, uh, interesting, co uh, comment here in terms of adding to our list of customer rights in a transformation. This is from Gassan on LinkedIn. He says, uh, you have a right to control the digital transformation project and the rights to intellectual property. It's a really interesting one. Um, I can comment more on the right to control the digital transformation project. I totally agree with that. Um, I highly encourage organizations to establish some sort of PMO function or program management program governance that the SI or the vendors fall within. Um, too often system integrators and vendors will say, don't worry about that. We got it. We've got a project manager that's going to come in and do that for you. Well, that the problem with that is, first of all, there's, there's a difference between a project and a program. 
the project manager that a system integrator vendor provides is to manage a technology work stream. And there's several work streams within a transformation. Technology is just one of them. You don't need or want, nor should you have your system integrator managing the non-technical work stream. So things like change management or process improvement or the overall PMO, even overall system architecture, even data migration. Those are things that you typically want to have specialists or other parties that are better at it to, to manage that. And so, again, this gets back to the point of you have to manage that stuff. You have to find a way to manage that either with your internal resources or with outside help or whatever the case may be. Um, as it relates to intellectual property, um, I guess there's a fine line there. I suppose if you develop your own uh, customization, there's a question there of who owns that intellectual property. I am not an attorney. And if there are any attorneys uh, that happen to be on the on the line here today, I'd love to hear. Um, I'd love to hear your comments here. In fact, I, I noticed that Kyler on LinkedIn tagged Marcus Harris, who is a prominent IP attorney. He also does a lot with digital transformations. He's been on my podcast before. I'm not sure if he's on the stream, but if he is, I'd love to hear his uh, legal advice, even though I'm, I'm sure he can't give free legal advice over a live stream, but maybe he can give us some thoughts or things to think about if he's on here uh, today. Um, so here's the, the question we had that, that Kyler on LinkedIn had for, for Marcus, which is, have you seen this contracting issue before? How can organizations avoid it? I'm not sure which contracting issue that's referring to since I'm not seeing the, the reply uh, that that's to. Um, here's a question I want to get to from William on, uh, he's on YouTube. So William uh, has a comment here or a question. How often do clients poorly define their success expectations contractually? Assumptions made, but not written down. Integrator fulfills to the letter, problems ensure, or problems ensue, I should say. Um, so that's the uh, the question there, the comment. And I would say, and again, this is another question from Marcus, who I see is uh, joining us on LinkedIn. I just saw him in the chat here, and I'll get to his comment on another unrelated thing here in a minute. But uh, this is another thing that uh, Marcus might have a, a good comment here on. Um, in fact, I probably should have just had Marcus as a guest <laughs> to tell me, uh, talk through this. Um, but so the comment of, of how do clients poorly define their success expectations contractually? Um, and I'd say that's very common that organizations do that, that they poorly define their success expectations. I think too often the focus is on a deliverable, a technical deliverable, which again, might be okay because really you're hiring your vendor to create a technical deliverable. The problem typically isn't that the success expectations in the contract are wrong for that, for that work stream or for that job or that role that you're hiring a, a contractor or, or a system integrator for. But the problem is you don't have any parties or any contractual relationships with anyone else to fill in all the other gaps. So it's not necessarily always the case that you need the SI or the vendor to be providing more clear success factors that are outside their their scope. But the problem is you, you've, you've entered into a contract that's very myopic and focused on creating a technical deliverable rather than a business transformation, which most organizations are looking for a business transformation. So the technical deliverables end up becoming a means to a, a greater end. And so that's, I don't know if that answers that question or not. I'd say part of it is a contractual issue, but part of it is also that you don't have the gaps filled in other areas outside of that one contractual relationship with your, with your software vendors. Um, and, and on a related comment here, this is from Marcus on LinkedIn. Marcus Harris is the attorney I was just mentioning. He hit his IP, digital transformation, software negotiation, all that sort of thing. That's just this, everything we're talking about here is sort of his, uh, 
his specialty on the legal side. And his comment here is that the SOW or the statement of work is the most is one of the most important documents you will negotiate. It needs to lay out the roles and responsibilities of both parties. So that actually does uh, begin to address William's point uh, just a moment ago uh, from from LinkedIn so or from YouTube. So thank you for that that comment, uh, Marcus. And I'm, I think we're gonna have more questions for you as we as we go through here. Uh, Dennis uh, from LinkedIn says that he loves the fifth point. And by the way, I have to call out Dennis because Dennis Anthony on LinkedIn, who's who's watching right now, this was his idea. This whole topic was his idea. It's a suggestion that I received from him. I actually meant to say that up front. So uh, apologies, I didn't mention that uh, earlier, Dennis. But uh, if you want to thank someone for a great, brilliant idea, you can uh, ping Dennis, who I, I have his name up here on the screen. If you hate the idea and you hate this topic, you can blame me instead. Uh, but hopefully that's not the case. Okay. So here's another interesting comment from uh, Gassan. So Gassan um, says that you have a right to privacy, no data to be leaked during the digital transformation project. Great point. That was not even on my radar, not even something I thought of, but it's a very good point um, as I did not think of that as a, top, as a thread when I was preparing for this discussion, but it's a really important one, the right to privacy and making sure that your data doesn't leak along the way. Um, and you know, not only that, but maybe taking it a step further, you also have a right to make sure that your your project is implemented in a way that preserves that data privacy and gives you the tools to manage and ensure that uh, going forward, even after the transformation, that you have tools and technologies in place that won't be um, won't have any cybersecurity or privacy issues going forward. So uh, here's a, a comment from Kyler on LinkedIn, and she says, "You have a right to select." Customers have the right to select their team. Cultural fit is critical. And so many times we see vendors force fit PMs and support teams to bill at a higher rate. You have the right to select your team. It should be collaborative. That's very well, very well said. Um, again, too, too often organizations or, or system integrators have this sort of don't look behind the curtain mentality. They're going to bring the team. They're the experts. You've got to trust us. Stop challenging us. Uh, just let us do our thing. And Yes, you need to trust to some degree, but I'd say if you take the trust but verify approach, too many organizations lean way too far toward trust and not nearly enough toward verify and sort of validating that they've got the right approach and poking holes and challenging and collaborating where necessary. And again, I know it's a there's a fine line between being super micromanaged or focused on micromanagement versus trusting a outside third party. But again, I think too many organizations are erring on the side of trusting too much. And in my opinion, that, that trust gets violated more often than not um, along the way. Uh, a couple other comments here uh, in, from Gassan again, uh, intellectual property um, for customizations and proprietary property. Um, so that that's a question that uh, actually we had for Marcus too, if you're listening, Marcus, is if, if a customer customizes software, does something to create something unique within a transformation and they're using a software vendor to develop that for them, who owns the IP or is that something you should negotiate in a contract? I guess that would be more of a, a question for Marcus if uh, he's listening, has any semi-legal advice for us uh, on that front. Um, another comment here from Dennis again on, on LinkedIn. And thank you for all the great comments, by the way, there's a lot here. So I really appreciate the, the uh, active feedback here. 
Dennis says you have a right to raise questions of the system integrators and get the reply from the OEM software company if the software, if the answer is not satisfactory. So if you're implementing Microsoft Dynamics, let's just say, um, and you're using a system integrator to implement, system integrator doesn't have a good answer. They can't figure out a certain function. They can't figure out how to do something that the software can or should do. Then you have a right to go to the uh, software company, in this case, in this case, Microsoft, in this example, to ensure that you get the answer you need. And that's a, that's a really important one too, because again, in this transition state that the industry is in right now, where we're transitioning from on-premise to cloud solutions, total rewrites of the software, in most cases, you're just getting situations where even the more experienced implementation and technical consultants don't fully understand the software, partly because it's changing and, and evolving every day, but also because a lot of that capability is not yet developed and it's still being formulated and built uh, as we speak. So you do have a right and you want to make sure you lean on your software vendor um, if you can't get what you need or the knowledge you need from the uh, from the system integrator themselves. Um, so that's good stuff. That's There's a lot there about you know what some of these customer rights are, but I want to shift gears here for the second part of our conversation and before I do that, though, a uh, really good comment that just came in um, I want to get to is that uh, this is from Sam on LinkedIn. He says customers should have the right to have their own consultants monitor the SI's consultants. Great point. Um, and it's a great add on to my earlier point around managing the SI and you're right. I think that was my fifth point. You're right to manage the system integrator to put PMO and governance in place, a right to put quality assurance in place, a right to bring on third party consultants to either do what you're saying, Sam, which is to manage the system integrator and make sure that you're translating your business needs into technology results, but also filling in the gaps and helping fill the void that is left by SIs. There's certain things that they don't do well or shouldn't be doing, things like organizational change and program management and process improvement, things of that nature. So those are uh, that's a really good uh, add-on point there. So I want to shift gears now and talk a bit about some of the responsibilities customers have. So up until now, I've been fairly hard on the vendors and system integrators and maybe giving, uh, maybe erring on the side of, of, you know, what the customers are not getting that they should be getting from system integrators and what rights they should be getting. But now I want to talk about the things that organizations should be doing and that they're responsible for that they too often don't do. They try to abdicate responsibility. They try to wash their hands clean. They try to outsource it to someone else. And these are the things that you can't do that with. And at least if you want to be successful, you can't or shouldn't be doing this stuff. Uh, there's actually more of these than I had, at least on my list. There's more responsibilities here than I, than I had uh, in my list of rights. Um, so the first is your responsibility to, to do your due diligence. Just because a software vendor tells you something doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And I don't say that because I think vendors or SIs typically lie. Uh, consciously or, or intend to lie or mislead, although sometimes they do. Um, but more often than not, it's a lack of knowledge. It's a overly optimistic view of the world that they have, and it's an overly biased view of the world that they have being focused on their technology and their sorts of implementation. And it's your job to do your due diligence and validate what you're hearing and poke holes in what you're hearing and make sure you fully understand what it is you're really getting yourself into. Um, because again, it's, it's easy to trust, especially when you don't go through these projects every day and it's more important to ensure that you also verify uh, in the trust but verify line of thinking here. A second thing is to define a realistic plan, budget, and resources. 
So again, software vendors and SIs are going to come to you with these proposals that are nine times out of 10, if not more, they're unrealistic, they're understated, they're lowballed, and it's going to underestimate and create a false expectation of what it's going to take to get the project done right. Partly because there's a couple reasons. One is that partly because the software is typically implemented and designed and built in a way that can be done faster than an organization can actually start to use technology. And those are two different things. Getting a deliverable of technology that works is different than getting a deliverable of technology that works and is now being used by the organization to drive business value and to run the business. Those are two different things and two different deliverables and two different outcomes. So if I get a proposal from a system integrator or software vendor that says, this is a timeline, this is a budget, this is the resource requirement, chances are pretty high that that's to create a myopic deliverable of technology. It's not to create a business adopted technology in a, in a true business transformation. Those are two different things. So you have to create or add a grain of salt to what the vendors have proposed to you to create that full picture of what the full transformation is going to look like. And even more fundamental reason why the plan and budget and resource proposals that you get from, from uh, software vendors are so often understated is because they're in sales mode when they provide those to you. They are trying to sell you on their services. They're trying to sell you on the value of their technology. And they can't really do that well if they worry that they're overstating the risk or the cost or the time it's going to take to go through an implementation. So they're more often than not going to give you the best case, overly optimistic utopia scenario. And so you have to take it with a grain of salt and say, well, maybe it's possible to implement our technology in 18 months, but we know our organization and what we're trying to accomplish with this transformation. And maybe 36 months is more realistic. It's not a terrible thing to add time to your timeline, as long as you're managing and, and being aggressive in how you manage the project and, and you know, you're not just letting time get away from you. You obviously need to have a sense of urgency, but there's a difference between, between having a sense of urgency and having a completely unrealistic plan. Those are two, you know, those are two, two different challenges. So the second one then is defining a realistic plan and budget and resources. Uh, the third responsibility, which is similar to one of the rights you have, but it's also a responsibility is to manage your system integrator and implementer. And back to Sam, Sam's point on LinkedIn, if that means that you hire a third party, independent, neutral consulting firm like third stage, and there's others out there as well. So this isn't meant to be totally self-fulfilling or, or self-promoting, although I am self-promoting. Um, there are, you have a right to do that. You have a right to hire someone like third stage to manage your SI, to manage your implementer, and to really help represent you and really be an extension of you and your PMO and ensure that you have ownership and control of the project. So you have a right to that. SIs do not like it. To be 100% clear, SIs do not like you to have a third party in there. It creates accountability. It creates, it takes away that that curtain, the curtain of don't look behind the curtain, uh, Wizard of Oz sort of thing. That goes away for the SIs, and they don't like that. They also don't like anything that is perceived to threaten their revenue stream. These big projects, especially the bigger client you are, there's more at stake, and they're going to try to protect their quote-unquote turf, even though it's not their turf. It's your turf, but that's a whole nother conversation, but SIs will work very hard to protect their turf. That was one of the first things I noticed when I went to Pricewaterhouse back in the nineties is I was fascinated and disturbed at the same time by how much time we spent. And by the way, build the client for this time, by the way, which is another whole nother problem and, and story for another time, but we would build a client to find ways to protect our turf. It was a very political, highly political situation. And we were very good at it. I, I couldn't believe how good that PwC was and our team and every project I was on was very good at just keeping outside third parties out, 
keeping that curtain up, making the customer feel confident and comfortable without challenging us in any sort of meaningful way. And that was, it was super unhealthy and it didn't make sense to me at the time. And still 25 years later, still doesn't make sense to me now. In fact, it makes even less sense to me now. So you have a right to manage your system inter uh, integrator in your implementer. Again, think of, think of if you're having worked on in your house, you're not just going to open up a checkbook and let whoever come into your house, as many people as the contractor wants to bring, you're not going to do that. You're going to, you're going to push back and say, look, I, I don't want to pay for A, B, and C, or we're being inefficient over here or over here. You're not doing, you're not making these adjustments to my house the way you want. I think we as individuals would probably feel pretty comfortable pushing on, pushing back on something like that. But for whatever reason, organizations and the organizational dynamics that most organizations have, create this learned helplessness and this lack of confidence in, in ability to do that, even though we would probably do exactly that if it was a, a personal situation. A fourth responsibility that organizations have is to define what you want to be when you grow up. So in other words, don't go in and buy technology and assume that that's going to define for you what your future state organization is going to be. You need to have a very clear vision of what it is you're trying to accomplish, not just strategically, but also operationally, business process-wise, organizationally. You need to have a clear vision of what it is you're trying to accomplish and what you want the organization to look like. And you also need to make sure you take the time to do those things that you're trying to do. So again, it's not just a matter of hiring an SI and a, and a vendor to come in and, and slam in some new technology. You need to take that time up front to, to plan that stuff out and to have a, a clear path, you know, clear vision and future state operating model and a future state organizational design that you're going to execute to. Um, you have a right to do that in, or you have a responsibility to do that um, early, early in your project. Related to that, a fifth thing then is to get alignment internally. You have to make sure you're aligned internally, and that's not something the system integrator is going to do for you. And the less aligned you are and the more involved the system integrator gets, the more expensive your lack of alignment becomes. What I mean by that is system integrator brings on army of consultants to start designing and building stuff. You aren't aligned as a team. You haven't defined your future state. You don't know what you want to be and you grow up. You can't get on the same page. Guess who's paying for that while you try to figure it out? You're, it's not the software vendor or the system integrator that's harmed by that. It's you that's harmed by that because now you're paying while the meter runs on the system integrator and the software subscription fees. The meter is running. The, the, the dollars are adding up while you're sitting there trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up and, and you're trying to get on the same page. So your job or your responsibility is to get alignment and to do that before you start jumping too far into the implementation before the really heavy spend starts to ramp up on a project. You need to make sure you have that alignment and, and too few organizations do that. Um, the other thing and uh, a second to last responsibility I have in my list here is to do the things that your system integrator can't, won't, and or shouldn't do. So in other words, your SI fills a role that you imagine a, a big project org chart. You've got your PMO up top. You've got different work streams like technology. You've got um, change management, data migration, architecture, process improvement, a bunch of different verticals. You also have third party or other bolt on systems, especially if you're doing a best of breed sort of situation, you might have multiple technology work streams. So the SI fills one box in your project org chart you have a right and a responsibility to figure out how you're going to fill in those other gaps. SI may tell you, don't worry about change management. We got it. We're going to train your people uh, on the technology. That's not change management. That's a very small subset of change management. That's not change management. SI might tell you, don't worry about program management. We've got a project manager. They do project management of one box on a project org chart. They do not do program management. 
So your responsibility is to figure out how am I going to fill these gaps? How am I going to add, how am I going to add that layer of program management? How am I going to add the change management I need? How am I going to figure out the data migration? How am I going to define that shared service model that I'm moving towards or that, um, that standard one company business process model that we're moving towards? That's up to you to determine. And then you translate that into what the SI needs to know to be able to build the software to do their, you know, their part of the, their box on the project org chart. So that's, that's another responsibility is to make sure that you do the things and find ways to address the things that the system integrator can't, won't, or shouldn't do. And then finally, the last thing I have in my list, and then I'll turn it to the audience here to see what you would add to the list is to establish a PMO or a program management organization. So again, it's back to the point, technology work stream, fine. You've got a project manager from your vendor or system integrator. You've got a technical project manager that's going to manage that work stream, but now you've got to figure out the, the overall PMO. How, what's my project charter? What's my overall program plan that includes all the different pieces of my transformation, not just the SI or the vendors? Um, how am I going to do the change management, all that stuff? So you need that, that PMO, you need the project charter, you need the program plan, you need the resourcing plan, the overall strategy, the governance and the framework and controls, the risk mitigation. That's another huge one um, that system integrators don't really want you to have too much visibility or transparency into what the risks are. In fact, they're going to work very hard to downplay those risks. That's something else I learned early, early in my career is that how much time we would spend spinning risks and bad news. We'd find we were really good and making bad news sound not that bad. And what you're doing is you're, you're pushing, you're kicking the can down the road and it's gonna catch up to you some point, but as a system integrator, I'm trying to protect my revenue stream. If I, if I create too much alarm, too much risk, the last thing I need is a disruption to my revenue stream. So I'm gonna find a way to push that out and to, to minimize and downplay that risk. But what you as an organization need to know is you need to know that risk sooner than anyone's willing to tell you. You need to know the risks up front so you can mitigate them quickly because by the time you realize that the risks are there and by the time you start to feel it, it's usually too late. Usually by then there's no turning back or you're, you're getting massive delays in your project or massive disruption to your operations. When you go live, there's just too much disruption if you, if you push that out. So it's in your best interest to identify risks as early as possible, even if it's not what you or anyone wants to hear. And none of us want to hear the risks, of course, but someone has to be talking about in mitigating those risks. So those are my list of responsibilities. Again, there's more responsibilities, I'd say, than rights, at least in my opinion, or in my initial list preparing for this conversation. Um, but um, those are just some of the things that uh, that come to mind. So I'm curious to hear from you, though. What are some of the other responsibilities that you think customers have, or what are the other responsibilities that you've seen customers fail on in terms of their their transformations? I'd love to hear your your feedback there as well. Here's a here's a long comment. I'm not going to show it on the screen just because it won't it won't show, um, but it's a really good one. So I want to make sure I get to it here. And this is from Sam on LinkedIn again. Sam says, I've spoken to too many companies who, when they bought an ERP system, didn't understand what they had bought. Some thought that they would have the equivalent of the computer from the Starship Enterprise sitting in the corner, solving all their problems, whilst others didn't ask for enough. Customers must educate themselves before the product starts. It's really well said. And I think you hit on a really important point and you, you blatantly or explicitly call it out in a way that I haven't yet, which is your last point, which is that customers must educate themselves before the product starts. And I think that's probably the best way to empower yourself too. The more you know, and the more you have an unbiased understanding of the good, the bad, the ugly of what you're getting into, the more empowered you're going to feel and the more you're going to be able to fulfill these rights and responsibilities that I'm talking about here today. 
I think probably if we had to get to a root cause of why these problems exist, I think Sam just hit on it, which is that too few organizations have the, the knowledge. So they lack the knowledge they need to feel empowered or to feel confident to do all the things I'm talking about here today. It's really hard to push back on your SI and your vendor if you don't know anything about transformations or you don't know anything about technology, you've never done this sort of project before. And that's okay. It's not that, you know, most organizations don't do this often and most organizations haven't done it much at all in recent years. And they're doing this for the first time in some cases, the first time in decades, they're going through a transformation of some sort. So it's not that you would expect an organization to have all this knowledge out of the gates, but you can find ways to educate yourself, bring in those third parties that will help educate you, bring in those third parties that will help represent you and arm you and equip you with the tools and the knowledge and the confidence you need to be able to do all the things we're talking about here today to manage the SI, to understand the good, the bad, the ugly of what technology you're deploying um, and, to, and to really just have that transparency and confidence that you need. I think that's a really well stated uh, comment, Sam. So thank you for that. We're here having a conversation about customer rights and responsibilities and what it means to your digital transformation. We have a lot more to cover. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 111. We're here having an interactive conversation with the audience about customer rights and responsibilities in digital transformation. There's another comment from uh, Dennis, which is interesting. Dennis on LinkedIn. Uh, this is, again, the, uh, the originator of this idea is this Dennis right here on LinkedIn. Um, the idea for this conversation, I should say. So Dennis says, support the SI to document the functional and technical documentation, not make it the SIs to prepare, which only he understands, he or she understands. Great point, really well said. And I think that's a key thing here, maybe just pushing or, or adding onto my comment earlier about the right to transparency and the right to visibility into what an SI is doing. Um, customers have that right. And the way to do that is to work side by side or more closely with uh, the, the SI to create some of these deliverables. You know, one thing that SIs do, which is, is brilliant, but I'd say in a sociopathic way, not, not in a good way, SIs are really good at making customers feel like they are being collaborative. Like they'll, they'll come, they'll come out with these org charts that say, okay, here's our project org chart. We're going to have, we're going to put our PM in place. Um, we're going to have all these functional leads and we're going to, I forgot what they call it. I think a lot of them call it, um, two in a box, I think is what the, the term that a lot of the big SIs use. They'll, they'll call it two in a box. So we're going to put two people in each of these boxes on, on an org chart. And one's going to be from us, the SI, the other one's going to be from you, the client. And you look at that and you think that that's great. That's exactly what we want. We want that collaboration. We want to work side by side with you. The problem there is it's, it's, it's overstating the role of the second person in the box. 
it's overstating the role of the SI or of the uh, implementing organization. And instead, what it is, is that the implementing organization becomes more of just a subject matter expert that's answering questions about how to configure the software. But that person, that second person in the box on the org chart, isn't typically heavily involved in actually doing configuration and learning side by side with how to how to configure the software or how to document what's been configured and just how to learn the software in general. Um, it goes back to that don't look behind the curtain mentality that SIs have. It's, yes, we need you to a certain degree, but we need you to go away and let us do our thing uh, beyond that. And I think pushing into that and, and really pressing on that dynamic, that unhealthy sociopathic uh, trend or that that behavior is something that's very important because that that is something that's going to enable you to um, to really have that ownership and have that knowledge and to to eventually work to have consultants go away. And that's one thing that at third stage, that's one of our as, as weird as it sounds and as damaging to us personally as it may sound. Our job is to work ourselves out of a job, you know. So we need to make we we need to not make cons, not make clients overly dependent on us in a in a codependent, unhealthy sort of a way, but we need to make them, we need to be successful at empowering them and making them able to manage this stuff on their own so that we can go away and it's not going to disrupt their, their business. And the irony of all that, by the way, just as a, as a side note, is the more we do that, I'm finding the more business we get from those same clients. They want to hire us because they trust us. So they'll end up hiring us back anyway. So if we just keep working ourselves out of a job, they're going to bring us back for something else because they, they like us so much and there's other needs that are going to evolve over time. And um, so I've just found that it, it it's almost in the short term, you have to be sort of anti-self-motivated, which is going to lead to more self-interest later on. So unfortunately, most SIs don't do that, though. Um, they're focused on the here and now of like, this is a massive multi-million dollar contract for us, and we are going to do everything possible to protect that and maximize that contract to get as much revenue out of that as we can. And you, I guess we could have a philosophical, ethical debate another time of whether that's you know, whether that's intentional or not, or, you know, whether it's understandable human behavior, but that's a whole nother conversation, which might actually be fun to have sometime. Um, here's a really interesting question from Deborah on LinkedIn. It's good to see Deborah again. She is, has been on many of our uh, streams in the past. So good to see you again, Deborah. Um, so I'm not actually, I'm going to hide the question here uh, for a second because just so I can read the whole thing. Um, so I'll hide it off the screen here. But Deborah on LinkedIn says, it's interesting that the SIs are the bad actors in many of these scenarios. In my market, there is not a lot of experience with my product. So we see clients who hire a third-party PMO with absolutely zero experience with the product, and they end up hindering the project and hurting the client's interest. It's a great point. And that that is absolutely another challenge that I have not mentioned, but it is something you have to be aware of, is you hire a third-party expert, let's say a, a program management or project management consultant, that's that they're good at project management. They're not necessarily experts in technology or a certain type of technology, but they're good at program management. That can be a, a damaging as well, because there's the thing with program management is there is a, there is a science to it. Of course, you've got your tasks, your dependencies, your, um, you know, your budget, you've got to track to uh, your earned value, you know, the, the earned value analysis and the you know, percent completion and all that stuff. So there is a science to it, but so much of transformation is an art. It's a learned art and it's something that doesn't show up in a Gantt chart, doesn't show up in a readiness assessment necessarily. It doesn't show up in your budget. Um, where it shows up is in cases where, for example, 
uh, let's just, I'm going to use test scenarios as an example. Let's just say I'm pro I'm project managing and I'm trying to get, I'm trying to assess uh, user acceptance. I'm trying to, I'm trying to accept, or I'm trying to measure the acceptance, the user acceptance of the testing. So we're doing conference from pilots. Let's say we're running through all these scenarios and I go through the, the process and I've got hundred percent acceptance on, on paper. That looks like success. We can complete, we can move on to the next part of the project. That's the science part of it. The art side of it would say, well, hold on, we've got hundred percent acceptance, but do we have the right scenarios? Have we, do we have an accurate rep representation of what the business needs are? Um, do the scenarios, have we documented, have we, have we tested enough within those scenarios? And those are things that don't show up in my hundred percent metric because my hundred percent metric suggests that I'm done and I've done this successfully, but the art side of it, the knowledge of the technology and the knowledge of digital transformation would lead me to ask more questions around, well, first of all, hundred percent acceptance sounds a little sketchy uh, and unbelievable if, if you've done this before, but that's what happens. Sometimes you get a hundred, a number like hundred percent acceptance and you want to strive for that, of course, but it's rare that you actually get it. So that's that's red flag number one. And red flag number two would be, well, let's just challenge and challenge ourselves and make sure we've really looked at all the exceptions and all the different scenarios that we need to be looking at. So that's just one microcosm or one small example of how digital transformation and technical knowledge and technical experience is just as important as the program management experience too. So I think you're right, uh, Deborah. I, I have been harsh on the SIs and vendors and I would maybe throw another bucket of uh, blame in, in any sort of third party that doesn't do this or do, doesn't understand this stuff and doesn't do it well. Sam Graham has a nice comment. I'm going to show it because it's self-serving. Uh, Sam says, Kyler, I check your website every week to read the articles that your team put up every day. So thank you for reading our blogs and website. Sam, I also encourage you to check out our YouTube channels as well under my name as well as Third Stage Consulting. Um, I'm going to get to a couple, a uh, couple more comments here. So many, so many comments here. This is really good. Um, I appreciate all the great comments here. It's, it's borderline overwhelming. So thank you. Um, especially being solo here today. Um, this is another interesting comment from Kyler. One key responsibility is leadership, a digital mindset, innovation, transparency, support alignment, all comes from strong project leaders. It's a great, great point. Something I did not highlight enough here, which is executive leadership, sponsorship, ownership, vision, all that stuff. That's another responsibility uh, and a right too, by the way, but it's, it's more a responsibility that organizations have. They have to create that, that clarity of vision and that strong project leadership um, in a project in order for it to be successful. Here's a comment from Trevor on YouTube. He says, I like the idea of a program. MO has taken off. I'm not sure what MO means, but I like the idea of a program. I'm going to skip the part I don't understand. I apologize for that. Um, there are so many streams that need to be coordinated. A single project manager can't run a digital transformation project on their own. Totally agree with that. And thank you for the validation. I'm not, I'm not totally crazy then apparently. At least there's one other person that agrees with my comment about uh, program management versus project management. So a lot to coordinate. And again, that's even if you don't have an internal PMO, which a lot of organizations, a lot of clients we work with don't have a PMO. So they say to us, well, we don't have a PMO. We don't have strong, strong project managers. How are we going to do this? And that's what, back to the education and the coaching. That's where when we work with clients at third stage, that's where we help them establish the PMO or at least establish a program manager um, to, to manage that, um, to manage that uh, overall process and that overall project. And then uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up one more 
one more comment here, even though there's a ton here, I should be getting to and some really good questions I'm not going to get to. And I apologize for that. Um, another responsibility, uh, according to Gassan, which I agree with, another responsibility is to set up KPIs for project success. So great point. Um, you want to talk about, you know, what is it that you expect this project to look like, not just in terms of budget and being on time and on budget, but also more importantly, what do things look like after you've gone live with new technologies? What are those KPIs? How do you measure success? How do you declare victory? And what do you do when you fall short? That's the other thing, because you're not going to, you're not going to declare victory on day one or anywhere close to day one after go live. You're going to try and do it as quickly as possible, but you're going to have to go back and do some remediation and optimization to really get those metrics that you expect. And so setting those metrics and measuring and then remediating and optimizing after transformation during and after transformation is really important. So that's a really well said, well put statement there. So thank you for that. Okay, good stuff. Well, thank you everyone for great questions and participation engagement in that conversation. Those are really good topics and, and questions that came up along the way. So we appreciate that. Uh, there were several questions we didn't get a chance to get to in the conversation that we're going to unpack a bit more and try and get to here in the next segment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 111. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and audio podcast platforms throughout the world. And uh, Kyler, we just had this uh, really engaging conversation about customer rights and responsibilities within digital transformation. What were some of your thoughts and takeaways and some of those open questions that we didn't get to uh, in that conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for the, the awesome audience engagement. I know I learned a lot from the audience during that conversation as well. Um, I almost feel like it needs to be two parts too, because um, we had so much on one side and so much the other. So, you know, it's always good to preface a part two, but Okay, Eric, let's get to some of those audience questions that we weren't able to get to. Um, so there's a few that talked about kind of the evolution of project management um, and the kind of the evolution of how systems move across the organization as opposed to just one area of IT implementation. Um, so Greg on, um, on LinkedIn said, lately I find a change in SI approach to ERP implementation. I find... Increasingly, consulting firms using PMs to screen interactions between the actual consultants. It seems like staying, quote unquote, on message is priority. In decades past, the implementation consultants ran things more and the project managers just coordinated. What's your feedback to that? Well, I think that's true uh, in many ways what Greg is saying in that, if I understand it correctly, that you know you have the PM that's sort of 
um, the gatekeeper or whatever you want to call it, the face to the, to the client and, and sort of the running interference. Um, and on one hand, there is something to be said for a, a central point of contact and a, a single point of accountability and single point of failure if something goes wrong on the project. But um, that it's also, in my opinion, a sign or a symptom of lack of trust of the other consultants. Um, and I remember when I was at uh, Pricewaterhouse, I was very frustrated by the fact that you're, you're very limited into what you, what interactions you can have with a client, especially certain executives and certain stakeholders. Um, it had to run through the most senior person on the project because they knew how to finesse things. They knew how to finagle the right message and add the right spin and make sure they put the best foot forward that represented the company, in this case, Pricewaterhouse. So um, I get why, it, you know, I've seen, I've been on that other side. I've seen, I know how it works and you see that a lot with our clients now. Um, still, you, you, you get that, that PM or that project lead that's running the, the entire uh, sort of the interference in between. So um, I think it's more self-serving than it is helpful to the client um, for the most part. Although, like I said, if it comes to project status and checking on the budget and where we're at with certain tasks and activities, that should run through the project manager. You need that consolidated single point of contact for some stuff related to project management. But when it comes to consulting and doing your job and doing the functional and technical aspects of a project, um, as a as a implementing organization that is ultimately in charge of the project, as we talked about in the, the discussion with customer rights, uh, you have a right to be in charge and you have a right to have direct line of sight into other consultants beyond the project manager from your system integrator. They may not like it, but you have a right to that. And I think Dennis kind of builds on this when it comes to what the client's rights are or the customer's rights. He says, um, support the SI to document the functional and technical documentation, not make it the SI to prepare, which he only understands. So I think evolving that into a question is the documentation of the functional and technical roles and responsibilities are really critical when moving into an SI relationship. Yeah. And if you think about it, it's the artifact that gets left behind, you know, that any of the documentation related to configuration or training documentation, or uh, if you do customization or any sort of development, just having documentation on how that was done, because a lot of the problems that organizations have years and decades after implementing new technology is that no one knows or understands how that technology was built. And so therefore they are limited in what they can do to improve or change that software. So you can mitigate that problem and eliminate your dependency on tribal knowledge by documenting that stuff. And that way, when your system integrator leaves, or even when your own employees leave to go on to other opportunities, you'll have that documentation that becomes a company asset that you can use to manage and, and maintain that software going forward. That's a great point. Definitely, you know, an overall um, project governance piece, it sounds like too, um, to be able to utilize that. Um, so we had a, another LinkedIn user that said, um, how do organizations equip themselves to ask the right questions to the change and communication consultants? How did say that again? How do they ask the right questions or how do they? How do they equip themselves? So how do they know what to ask when looking at change or communication consultants? Because it, it can kind of be a gray area and isn't always well-defined. So what are some good questions they should ask? Well, I think asking what, First of all, what the scope of change management is to them, the, the consulting firm, um, and making sure they have a holistic view of what change management is, looking beyond just end user training and communications, um, which is where most change consultants gravitate towards. Um, that's important stuff. But you, if they're not looking, if they're not including things like organizational design or change impact assessment or organizational assessment, uh, benefits realization, if they're not including 
some of these core components of change management in their change plan and, and strategy and methodology, then I'd say that demonstrates a lack of understanding of uh, change management. Um, you can certainly ask qualification-based questions, like how many, of, how much of your staff is certified in ProSci or some other uh, change methodology. Uh, you could ask. I, I also like to ask the change team's knowledge of technology, because if you get a change team or consulting firm that's too uh, ivory tower in their approach to change management, and they don't have a, any sort of detailed understanding of technology and business operations in general, they're just not going to be effective in their jobs. It's going to be more of a fluffy, touchy-feely sort of approach to change management versus a pragmatic, tangible, business value-based approach. So those are some of the things I would ask just to get to the bottom of what they, what their real competencies are uh, as it relates to change management. Absolutely. And those are good questions for all consultants, you know, as well um, in, in interviewing. So definitely um, good insight there. So moving on to when we talk about the responsibilities um, or the, the overall, um, I, th I think almost responsibility isn't the right word. It's, it's the overall strategy that you should have to ensure that your project is successful as an internal team. Um, so, you know, knowing what that looks like. So Malcolm said, um, whether from supplier, a third party or internal company project teams, all should be aiming to make themselves redundant. If this happens, the product has been implemented well. Users will be educated and training and take ownership of their own system. So I'm going to kind of split this one into two questions because I think it, he makes good points. Um, so the, the first part of that question is aiming to make themselves redundant. I think that's kind of an interesting way to talk about standardizations of processes and efficiencies. Um, that should be a part of the client's responsibility to continue that post-implementation. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then the second part of that um, is the taking ownership of their system. And I think that's a really important piece that a lot of times it can be confusing when it comes to not only our kind of line and thread on intellectual property, but what does their relationship look like with their vendor support teams post go live? Should they still be leaning on them? Should they internalize all of that? What does that look like? Well, I think during the implementation and even leading up to the implementation of the transformation, organizations need to be doing a better job of trying to extract as much knowledge as they can to be more self-sufficient. So starting day one of the transformation, I mean, you should be thinking about how can we take more ownership of this, leverage the outside help, the outside expertise, but transfer that knowledge. And, you know, kind of a spoiler alert, you're going to have to do a lot of that yourself. You're, you're going to have to kind of force the SI and the vendors to provide that knowledge transfer because they're not going to willingly do it. And it's usually not top of mind for most, most SIs and most vendors. Um, so yeah, educating yourself along the way to where uh, by the time you get to go live and certainly post go live and stabilization, using outside vendors becomes more of an exception rather than a, a necessity, a day-to-day -day necessity. Absolutely. And I, I just want to end with one more piece of Sam Graham's comment. And I know you talked about, um, you kind of brought this up um, when he says, I've spoken to too many companies who who, um, when they bought an ER system, they didn't, un ERP system, excuse me, they didn't understand what they bought. Um, so I want to kind of morph this into what are those first steps that clients should take to educate themselves on their rights around interacting with a, an independent consultant, a software vendor, an SI? Where can they get this information to actually understand what they're purchasing? 
as it relates to the software or from the consulting or the services side? From either way. So if say if I'm a client A and I'm, you know, talking to third stage, I'm talking to SAP S4 HANA or SAP just in general, and I'm talking to a larger SI, how do I make sure that I am doing that, that I'm educating myself and taking that responsibility and understanding what I'm looking for to achieve um, as an internal organization to ensure that I'm getting the maximum business value of what my investment looks like? Yeah, I mean, you can certainly... Uh lean on companies like us at third stage. And a lot of times our clients, before they ever become clients, will just reach out with questions. And that's something we're happy to do for most organizations through the world is if you've got questions about how to stand up a PMO or the th the questions you should be asking as you go through the procurement process or how to manage your SI or whatever the case may be, um, you can always reach out to us. You can reach out to me and we'll certainly have a conversation about how, you know advice we might give or uh, just informal sounding board sorts of suggestions. So that's probably a good place to start and certainly educating yourself with, with other resources to, to understand those things. And the, and the whole reason I did that topic or the reason I like that topic to do as a uh, discussion for today is that around customer rights and responsibilities is because I don't think enough people talk about it and I don't think it's ever been published anywhere. So that was a kind of an attempt to maybe put something out there as a starting point for a customer bill of rights or whatever you want to call it uh, going forward. Yeah, and just kind of adding to those assets, obviously your YouTube channel, um, the Third Stage YouTube channel, our podcast series here. We also have a shorter form podcast called Digital Transformation that drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday that's um, more shorter form and specific to different topics. Called um, Digital Stratosphere, just to clarify. It's oh, I'm sorry. Stratosphere. Jeez, yep. There's so many digitals going on. <laughs> yeah, Digital Stratosphere. Thank you for that correction. Um, and then, as we mentioned in that conversation, we do have blogs specifically that come out every Monday, Wednesday, and, and Friday, um, as well as our um, 2023 digital transformation port, which is kind of an all-encompassing playbook. So if we can help in any other way, um, or you do have questions, if you have additional questions for Eric from this conversation, feel free to pop them in the comments, and I will grab them and ensure um, we address them or that we're able to respond to um, our awesome audience. So thank you for the great engagement in this conversation. Yeah, it was a really good questions and conversation there and uh, added a lot to the starting list that I, that I had for the conversation. So that was, that was helpful as well. Um, and just sort of building on that customer rights and responsibility thread, um, we're going to continue that theme of ownership and control and managing your system integrators and your vendors and all that stuff by talking about the contracting process. And it, it all starts with the contracting process in terms of how you, how you manage your SI, what responsibilities you have and what rights you have. And if the more of that you can bake into a contract, the better. So what we thought we'd do is play you a clip from a while back. We had a conversation with uh, Marcus Harris, who's a, an attorney that specializes in software contracts and intellectual property, among other things. And uh, he's been a frequent guest on the podcast in the past in an interview format. But in this discussion, uh, we wanted to play you uh, the topic of uh, the top four lessons of ERP contracting. We'll get his perspective on that as well. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, 
You can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings, and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 111. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and audio podcast platforms throughout the world. Um, thank you for being here today. Uh, we're going to play you a clip of a uh, session that we hosted a while back. So this is sort of a, a replay of a past session about the top four lessons of ERP contracting. It's a conversation we had with Marcus Harris, who's a, an attorney and a prominent contract negotiator within the software space. And the interesting thing about Marcus, by the way, is he used to work for the software vendors doing their legal counsel and their contracting. And now he is on the other side, primarily representing buyers in implementing organizations in their contract negotiation. So uh, we're going to roll this clip and then we'll come back with uh, questions and follow-up discussion afterwards. So here's the clip with Marcus Harris. So uh, just to start, I was going to talk a little bit about what are some of the lessons learned just from my perspective as a expert witness and helping clients with project recovery and just helping clients even that aren't failing, but they're struggling. How do, what are some of those lessons and common patterns we see? And on the right side of the screen, I included just some recent failures that um, have come about in the last, you know, call it the last year or so. Um, we've all heard about, you know, over time, you've heard about the, the Hershey's cases of the world, the, you know, waste management, uh, Nike, you know, some of these really big, uh, ERP types of failures, but even more recently, um, there's been as recently as just within the last couple months, a fairly big uh, SAP failure with, uh, I think it's the Department of Labor of, of uh, South Africa um, had a big SAP uh, failure um, that they're struggling to uh, basically process uh, injury claims for, for workers in South Africa. And I, I don't remember the, remember the exact statistic, but it's something like 10 or only 10 or 15% of people that are injured now in South Africa can actually get a claim process because of this problem. And the reason I bring this up, even though we could also talk about Lidl, which is a retailer in Germany and Europe that just went, uh, that just had a big failure with their ERP or lease plan, which is another European company. The reason I brought up this one and the, the reason I'm so uh, intrigued by the the one in South Africa more recently is because it's a great reminder that ERP projects affect people. And right now, I think more than ever, at least in my career, people are concerned about employee well-being and health and safety. And it's interesting to see that, you know, if we mess up an ERP implementation, it can actually create, you know, it's more than just costing us our career or, you know, blowing a budget or messing up a timeline or whatever the case may be. In some cases, it can actually affect uh, people in that case. Um, so that's the reason we bring that up. But there's, you know, there's 20, 30, 50 big high profile cases we could rattle off to you. But some of the lessons that we've learned from these cases um, along the way are that, you know, the projects that 
struggle and the ones that don't tend to go as well are the ones that don't have clear project goals. They don't know what they're trying to be. The project isn't aligned with what the company is trying to be when it grows up and that whole uh, strategic alignment piece of it. It also gets back to the agile comments we had at the last, at the end of the last session. And that a lot of times companies will use agile as a way to just to get something started. But if they don't have that bigger picture project goal and the bigger picture context and vision, they tend to go down the wrong path just because by nature, you know, it's going to drift in, in the wrong direction. So companies that have the clear project goals are generally the ones that are more successful and the ones that fail have a very high likelihood of not having had those project goals to begin with. Uh, business process require or business, uh, having clearly defined business requirements is another one. So companies that uh, either clearly didn't clearly define the processes, processes and requirements up front, or they're still defining their processes as the project goes on and as they start testing and as they get to getting close to go live, those companies tend to have problems and struggle because it's, a, it's somewhat of a moving target if you don't have clear business requirements early on. And that's you another- know what oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna. I was gonna say. I mean, you know, and I alluded to this at the beginning of when I was introducing myself. Is you really want to deal with these issues on the front end, right? Um, that's where where it makes sense to deal with them. Um, you've got to be detailed um, as you can. And from my perspective, you've really got to try to use the contractual negotiation process and the contractual framework that you negotiate with that vendor to incorporate these items in. Because if you don't do it on the front end, um, you're gonna do it on the back end. And there's a saying in my business called, it's this, it's you know, early legal advice is not expensive. Um, you, know, you negotiate a contract with the other side, um, it's gonna take much longer than you think. And we touched a, bit, a little bit on this last time uh, yesterday, but you know, you, your spend on legal fees associated with that contract negotiation process is gonna be minimal compared to the spend that you're going to uh, outlay for, for litigation. We'll get, we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah, it's very true. And also choosing the right software. That's another big uh, topic. I know you, you and I have talked about Marcus in that, you know, a lot of this is, this is always important. You always want to choose the right technology and make sure it's a good fit for your organization. But this is a really big problem now. And it's not as easy as it sounds because so many of the big vendors now are, are in the middle of that transition to the cloud. So they're kind of migrating their on-premise legacy products over to cloud versions. And that transition is not complete. And some of these products are half-baked. They don't have the functionality that should be there. So companies are kind of jumping in, you know, with blinders, assuming that when they buy, you know, S4 HANA or Oracle Cloud or Microsoft D365, they assume they're getting the equivalent of what they would have gotten if they bought a more mature on-prem solution. So you really want to poke holes in whatever it is you, you end up buying and make sure you, you choose the right software and know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, and we, we see this on, on, a, on a regular basis now where you know, these, these cloud solutions aren't really fully baked. And just like you said, Eric, I mean, they're, they're, they're transitioning these on-premise solutions into the cloud, but it's not, it's not, it, they're not designed specifically for the cloud. And, and in fact, you know, you talk about how these ERP implementation failures affect real people. I had a situation like this a couple of years ago. It was specifically where my client had um, tried to implement a half-baked solution, um, you know, they turn the switch at go live, the thing is just disastrous and it has just massive implications for the company. It was a hundred year old uh, pet supply company 
um, that went out of business in the last couple of years, be, and primarily because of the failure of their ERP system. So, I mean, these things have real world implications. And it's not only on the, on the top end for the Littles, you know, and the, the Hershey's and the Nike's of the world, but, you know, if, if they're going to fail, just imagine, you know, what you're up against when you're trying to pick the right software to find your business requirements and, and set your business goals or, or project goals, rather. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, companies with realistic expectations are more likely to succeed than the ones that don't. A lot, a lot of what you and I see a lot, Marcus, are the companies that get sold a, a bill of goods that just wasn't realistic. They get sold that six-month quick hit implementation, you know, just use our product off the shelf, don't customize anything, use it vanilla, use our best practices and you can get this done in six months or whatever the number is. And you hang your hat on that, you go to the board, you ask for money, you plan to that, and then you find out, well, it turns out that was never realistic to begin with. And then you end up making a lot of bad decisions later on that lead you, you know, towards the kind of circling the drain on, on uh, making things even worse. Right, and, th and this, th th this is an issue that actually brought Eric and I together. He was the ex an expert witness in, the, in a case that I had um, where the customer, my client, really did not have realistic expectations. The, the vendor um, represented to my client that they could implement the software with virtually no involvement from the client, um, which in, in a modern ERP scenario, that's just not feasible. It's, it's not a realistic way to go about it. And, and, you know, you've got to put some blame on my client, certainly, but, you know, the, the vendor should have known better. So, you know, having an understanding of what's realistic, setting your expectations accordingly is key. And, you know, you, you advocate for involvement of independent consultants. And here, I think it really, I think it makes sense in general, but here it, it doubly so. Because, you know, if you, the life cycle of these ERP systems is what, 15 years, 10 years, 20 years. You know, if you haven't implemented something in that period of time, you may not know what a realistic expectation is and it's incumbent upon you then to engage somebody uh, an independent consultant to, to tell you what's reasonable and what's not reasonable to set your expectations yeah yeah absolutely and, you know jumping ahead of you know i'll skip to the last bullet here um just because it's so important but the the one commonality that that i've seen on every single literally every single expert witness case i've been involved with and every single failure that we've had to go clean up was an underinvestment in organizational change management. And that's the only thing I can point to that's the one thing you always see. Um, and doesn't necessarily mean it's a 100% correlation factor or whatever, but it, it does suggest that companies that don't do change management well have a high likelihood of failing. And I've yet to see a project on the flip side, I have yet to see a project that was successful that didn't invest heavily in change management. So I think there's absolutely a very strong correlation in, in those two things. Um, you know, with, with change management. I know, Marcus, you, you debated that or you've had to deal with that a lot in some of your different cases as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's one of three things that we see in almost every case that, that we're involved in. And um, I think you've said it before, you know, you're, you're never going to be upset about how much you've spent on organizational change management. No one comes out of these things thinking, hey, I should have spent less on this, right? You're, that, that's an area where you're going to want to throw money at um, because it's such a risk. Um, you, you know, you're, you're essentially swapping out the spinal cord of your business for, for a new one. Um, and there's going to be pushback and there's going to be resistance and issues associated with your, your employees and adopting that new system. Um, and this is the one way I think that, that makes the most sense to try to overcome that. Um, but yeah, to your point, I mean, it's, it, it's a constant in almost every failure that we see. Yeah. Yeah. And what I'd, I'd love to do now is, uh, 
ask another question of the audience here and see, you know, we've kind of shared some of the things that we see in a lot of our uh, expert witness and failure and project recovery types of experiences. But what are some of the biggest concerns that you have as it relates to your digital transformation? You can pick as many of these as, as uh, makes sense to you. Um, but we'd love to see your thoughts around is it lack of clear project goals and direction, poor requirements, concern about functional fit, you have unrealistic expectations, haven't involved enough people in the project, processes not being well-defined, um, managing project scope and cost or organizational change management. Love to, love to hear your thoughts here on this. And actually while we're, uh, while those responses are coming in here, Marcus, I'll share them here in a second. Um, yeah, here's a, I'll just answer a, a question here um, uh, uh, or maybe make a couple points here that, that the audience is making here. Um, Uh, here's a comment from a, uh, let's see, oh, here's, a, here's a comment from one of the audience members. Don't waste time in defining requirements that are intuitively obvious, though. The solution must support, like, for example, the solution must support straight line depreciation. Something that obvious or that basic isn't, isn't necessarily necessary. And that's a really good point because a lot of companies don't spend enough time focusing on the things that are differentiators for them or really important competitive advantages. And they've spent time overanalyzing things like straight line depreciation or things that aren't necessarily competitive to them or, and or they're not unique to different, different ERP systems. So it's a great point. You want to prioritize your requirements and focus in the right areas. And that's where, you know, outside help can, can help you do that. People that I, I, I think that's, that's true, but I also would, would just a word of caution about that. You know, the, the way to go about this is really to focus on what's important to you um, and take a broad, expansive view of that because you know you you may think that something is going to be baked into the system um, that's fundamental to the way you do business. So you don't even think about bringing it up, you know. But if if you if you haven't identified it as something that's important to you, don't assume necessarily that it's going to be in the software. We've run into that multiple times in, in lawsuits where you know there's an assumption that the the uh, the processing times in the software are going to be under you know three seconds. Um, and be able to you know process the hundreds of thousands of transactions in a day and in reality the system can you know, can only do it in 10 seconds and that, yeah. that becomes a problem so I, I agree but with some caution right yeah and I'm gonna go ahead and share these results now uh, on people's responses um, so there's a fair number of people that share my bias for change management and hopefully I didn't taint the data or bias the data by making that comment right before I launched the poll uh, but change management was number the number one response. Seventy percent um, are concerned that that's one of their biggest concerns is change management. Um, you can see some of the other high ones. Our business processes are well not well defined. Fifty three percent said that. Uh, Forty seven percent say they have unrealistic implementation expectations. Uh, curious to hear people's qualitative feedback on that one. Is that because you didn't have realistic expectations to begin with, or is it because COVID nineteen hit and kind of screwed up your plans, or is it bit of both. I'm really interested in that. So if you don't mind, you know, sharing your, your feedback for those of you that answered uh, unrealistic expectations, that also kind of fits back to what we were just talking about, Marcus, on, on making sure you've got that realistic view. Right. Uh, clear project goals and direction, you know, 34% say that's a big concern. Again, with that response, I'm curious to know, was the project, was that always a challenge or is that more of a challenge now because of COVID-19 and the changing world? I'd love to hear your, your, your feedback on that. 
Um, interesting that the, which, which, here's something that's really interesting about this data. The, so when you think about why a project fails or what causes it to go over budget or whatever, you think project management, manage scope, manage cost. And a lot of times on the surface, that seems like the thing you should be doing, but that was actually the least concern of all these responses. 17% uh, had that concern that managing scope and cost was a concern. So which to me suggests that there's some deeper root causes that people are concerned about, which is good because usually it is those root causes that cause failure. It's usually not because you had a bad project manager or you couldn't manage your scope or cost appropriately. Usually there's something beneath that that, that drives it even even more. So thank you for sharing those those results. Those are great comments there um, and appreciate that, that feedback. Um, I'm just gonna share kind of a real-time comment related to the poll here uh, in a follow-up question I had, and then we can move on to your uh, the next slides, Marcus. Um, this is a comment here on unrealistic expectations. The vendors stated they could implement an accelerator-based approach to the business in three to six months without an understanding of the actual complexities of the business, two plus years later, program pulled. So um, unfortunately we see that a lot. You, you get these, it, it seems like six months is that magic number. I don't know why. It seems like for a small to mid-sized company here, six months, for a big company, it seems to be 18 months. It seems to be these round numbers that you just hear <laughs> over and over again. And you know, it's not realistic. I've yet to see a you know, big company implement anything in 18 months, let alone a, a big ERP. Uh, implementation. Um, another comment here is one of the items missing is not prioritizing requirements. Rather, they're giving equal importance to processes done once in a month by a single user and to process and not treating those any differently than processes done every hour, every day by lots of employees. And that's back to the point earlier about just make sure you uh, prioritize your, your requirements and focus your evaluation accordingly. Now read one other one because it's interesting too. Uh, unrealistic um, implementation expectations. Having a strong change management strategy is critical. Equally important is the organization's change management skill and ability. You can only execute change strategies to the level of change capability that the leaders have. Great point. Uh, you can bring in all the outside help you want, but until you get those uh, executives and start with the leaders and make sure they understand you're on board and aligned, all the stuff below is, is going to fall flat. And that's, uh, that's why when we do change management for our clients, one of, the, one of the first things we focus on is that strategic alignment and how do we get them aligned and how do we get them clearly articulating and defining what this transformation should look like and what the change should mean to the organization. Because without that, the other stuff doesn't really matter. We're here playing a clip with Marcus Harris talking about the top four lessons of ERP contracting. We have a lot more to cover. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Can I play with the stand 
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 111. We're here playing you a clip with Marcus Harris talking about the top four lessons of contracting within ERP implementations. With respect to litigation, you know, obviously, when, when an implementation fails, not all of them end up in litigation. Um, and certainly a small subset of, of the small subset that actually fail do end up in litigation. But when they do, these are the key takeaways that, that, that I would want you to leave with after, after our presentation today. And that certainly, you know, litigation should be your last resort. Nobody wants to spend time in their, attor their attorney's office or in a deposition. Um, it's draining uh, both emotionally, it's, you know, resource draining. It's just not something that, that most people uh, want to be involved in and certainly enjoy. Um, no matter how good your contract is or how ma no matter how good you think it is, it's going to be way worse than you think it is, okay? Um, every contract that we've looked at, uh, vendor contract or a negotiated vendor contract is you've got tons of onerous provisions and gotchas in there that make litigating uh, that contract much more difficult than it, it should otherwise be. Um, these cases are incredibly difficult, okay? You're going over many months, you know, we talked six months, 18 months. Um, this is not like, you know, going to the grocery store and slipping on a banana in the produce section. That's a finite event. Um, you know, there's witnesses. That's, that's an easily litigated kind of scenario. This thing, there's hundreds of people involved and it takes, you know, many months of investigation to figure out just exactly where the tipping point is, um, you know, certainly there's going to be blame to go around, right? Um, every time you, you point the finger at the vendor, they're gonna point the finger right back at you. And many times their criticism of you is going to be legitimate. Um, it depends on how legitimate that criticism is as to whether you're going to win the case or not. And then finally, you know, like I said, these cases are incredibly difficult and success is just is just not guaranteed and you know any any attorney that you go to that says yeah let's sue them um you know this is a, a great case you're absolutely going to win um, they're really not leveling with you these cases like i said are difficult um and there's a lot of reasons to file a lawsuit um, and we'll get into that in a second now, next slide so like i said litigation should be your last resort um, you know, when clients come to me virtually every time, I will tell them, do everything you can to right side your implementation. And, and the reason for that is that the amount of money that they're going to spend correcting where their implementation is going off the rails is probably going to be less than they would spend in attorney's space to litigate that from uh, point A to point B, point B being a full-blown uh, jury trial, okay? Um, you know, how much does it cost? Well, it's incredibly expensive. I think, you know, if you're, if you're able to file the lawsuit and get past a motion uh, to dismiss and you're in the thick of discovery, you're going to look at at least three hundred to $400,000. If you're going to go all the way uh, with motions for summary judgment, uh, pre-motion briefs or pre-trial briefs rather, um, going to trial, preparing witnesses, hiring experts, you're looking at an excess of, mil of a million dollars, I would say. In today's environment, on a case like these, and these are incredibly complex litigations, you're looking at anywhere from 300 on the, the low end, if it's really going to go, to maybe 1.2 million over a period of two years. Um, not something that you want to jump in with both feet, okay? If you can avoid it, I think it makes a lot of sense to, to, to not engage and not to go forward. Um, something I talked about yesterday 
And that's this concept of a soft contract and having uh, a practical approach to these kinds of things. I mean, it's easy to threaten people, uh, but I think get to the decision makers, talk about where the problems are, um, you know, executive to executive and come up with a creative solution that gets you what you need um, so that you can focus your attention on the business at hand. You know, like, it's, like, like I say here, litigation is stressful. Um, it takes your focus away from your business and it will be almost the only thing that, that your executives are focused on for you know, maybe a year. Getting ready for trial, getting ready for depositions is, is incredibly time consuming and incredibly stressful. I mean, Eric knows he's been a witness. He's been on the stand multiple times. He's prepared for depositions. Um, and you know, when you're going toe to toe with, with an aggressive defense attorney, you know, it's, it's not an easy experience. And like you said, there's always, there's typically enough blame to go around or at least ambiguity around where the blame should be. So you end up with a, a largely, a, in some ways, a subjective argument um, that can be difficult to win at times. Yeah, and it, it, it is, it comes, sometimes it does come down to a subjective analysis of this, you know. Um, and, you know, because this is software, it's this dynamic kind of amorphous thing that regular people may not understand. You know, it might be hard to, to, to get across Hey, the, the substantive issue with the software, just as an example, is that it doesn't process my transactions within three to four seconds. Instead, it takes eight seconds per transaction. You know, well, you know, my, my, my key question to my clients is, well, so what? You know, why is that, why is that a big deal? Well, when you're processing a million, you know, sales orders in a day, you know, 10 seconds per is, is, is kind of a problem. Um, and again, going back to what I said a second ago with this next point, having a practical approach to this. Um, if you're thinking of suing your vendor, you know, think about how reliant you actually are on that software. Let's assume that you've gone live, uh, the go live was a disaster, they've right-sided it enough to kind of limp you along, and you just can't do it anymore. You know? um, if you're getting maintenance services from them, you're getting support, you're getting consulting services to keep you in business every day, um, you know, what does that mean if you sue them? You know, are they still going to provide those services to you? Are they going to be incented to give you the best service they can? Probably not. Um, you know, so you could be caught between a rock and a hard place when you're trying to make a decision whether to sue. And I think you've got to think about this from a practical perspective and really think that this is something that you really want to do. So let's go to the next slide. So I touched on this a little bit yesterday and, and just now. You know, the, these contracts that you get from vendors are incredibly one-sided. They're onerous. They're filled with uh, provisions that attempt to shift all of the risk of the business transaction to you, okay? They are drafted literally by teams of attorneys, the form contract, before you ever see it. Um, it's vetted. Every, every section in there, you know, is in there for a reason. The venue is picked because it's beneficial to that particular vendor. The limitation of liability is set a certain way uh, because it, it's beneficial to the vendor and not beneficial to you. You know, you've really got to know what you're dealing with. And you've got to have an attorney that can take a look at that contract, analyze it, and figure out creative ways to get around it. You know, if you've got a limitation of liability provision that says that you're only going to be able to recover a subset of the total fees that you've paid, let's say you paid a million dollars in fees, but you've only paid, you know, $250,000 in software fees and your limitation of liability, 
the amount that you can recover in a lawsuit is capped at $250,000 in software fees and you spent that in the first month and the limitation liability says you only get what you spent in the last six months on software fees, you know, again, you're between a rock and a hard place. What are you going to get? You know, I've had defense attorneys come back to me with the damages calculation that says, you know, here's, here's what it is. It's a big zero. Okay. That's, that's all you're entitled to. So you're not going to get anything. So you might as well walk away from the lawsuit. That will be the position that they take. And it's going to be set up that way. Um, you know, think about the warranties and the remedies section. You know, if, 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 if there is an issue with their performance or the software, what does the contract obligate them to do, right? What does is, what is the warranty say? If the warranty says that the software is going to substantially comply with the documentation, you know, have you actually ever seen the documentation? You may say it doesn't work, but the vendor, rest assured, is going to say, well, you know, the, the software does everything say that, that the documentation says it's going to do. The fact that you want it to process you know, transactions within a three-second uh, period of time doesn't mean that the software doesn't work. You know? So these are the kinds of things that you're, that you're up against. Um, and it is going to be challenging. Let's go to the, the next slide. And like we just talked about, you know, before you get involved in this, you've got to sit down with your attorney and you've got to really analyze everything that, that has happened, right? You've got to create a timeline. You've got to look at all the documents, the statements of work, the software license agreements, amendments, addendum. Um, you've got to really understand, you know, where the point of no return was. And this is all kind of in the pre-complaint investigation period. That's what I like to call it. Because you don't want to file a lawsuit if your client was actually the one that caused the failure, right? You want to make sure that you've got a reasonable chance of being able to, to not only point the finger at the vendor, but proving that they violated the terms of that contract um, or they did something even worse. And we'll get into that in a second, tort claims, fraud, misrepresentation, and the like. But I think you know, the, the takeaway from this is most software failures are really not a failure of technology, okay? The software in, in some way, shape, or form is going to work. Um, it may not work, and this is a vendor line, the way that you think it was going to work, but it's going to work. It's a failure of the process, and you have to understand where, where things broke down in that process. And finally, go ahead. Interrupt you, Marcus. A lot of times the definition of what does it mean for the software to work, I mean, that's, that's oftentimes one of the big disputes is, well, okay, it works technically, but it doesn't work for our business, or it doesn't do A, B, and C, and we wanted it to do A, B, and C, or you told us it would do A, B, and C, and maybe it does A, B, and C, but not quite the way we want it to. So it becomes that the whole back and forth on what does it mean that the software doesn't work or does work. Right, and I mean, that, that's a huge issue each and every time. It's, you know, well, what, what does the software actually do? What did we say it was gonna do? What does the documentation say it was gonna do? And, you know, this goes back to having reasonable or unreasonable expectations. And the, from the vendor's perspective, they're always gonna say, look, your, your expectations of what the software is supposed to do is just unreasonable. You know, this is not magic. This is not, was not intended to solve every business process that you have. Um, and that's where, when we get people like uh, Eric involved to, be, to, to, you know, to kind of vet out the, the real from, from the imaginary. So Marcus, a question, uh, just if you don't mind, I'll jump in here with a couple questions yep. from the audience. Um, what there's two questions I want to ask for us to talk about, Marcus. One is, uh, would you please speak to some of the symptoms that organizations should be alert to so they know when the program starts to go sideways? 
and you know, I can take a first pass at it. I mean, a lot of times it's, you know, when we're in the midst of a project that starts to hit the guardrails, or if we're getting involved to come in and recover a, a failure, you know, one of the first things that we see start to slip is, is uh, there's a kind of a resistance to the project a lot of times, just the project in general, the, the resistance to the software, resistance to the overall changes, resistance to the way the processes are being defined. And a lot of times that's kind of a, it's a smoke signal for a lot of deeper issues around a lot of the stuff we've, we've talked about. Now, another thing that, that is a common, um, a common indicator, which may sound counterintuitive, are the projects that show all green on the status report and show no risks. Whenever I see that, I think something is wrong. Something is very wrong with this project. If you don't, if everything's green and it's not yellow or red, or you don't have a pretty robust set of risks that you're trying to deal with. If you haven't identified those problems, that means there's a problem because they're there, you just haven't done anything about it or your system integrator is not telling you about it, which is even worse. Yeah, and that and that's a common allegation. It's it's this, what we would call string along fraud. Okay, where the vendor actually hid problems from you, so you couldn't actually make a determination as to what to do. And if you had known the true state of the project, you would have had the ability to you would have been empowered, you know, to terminate it, to to spend more money or do whatever you you know, wanted to do. But you didn't have the the tools uh, available to you to make that decision on your own. And that's that's typically a big issue. Um, one of Kind of the key indicators that we see in our cases is almost always you know missed deadlines missed milestones deliverables that are not conforming to their specifications that's that's one of the ways it starts and then i think you know trying to remedy that and you get into the situation where you know, there's a non-conformance and you're spending more money and more money and more money trying to figure out you know where the problem was and trying to remedy the problem that's um, that's one of the main things that we will we will see in in the cases that we will get. Yeah, there's another comment here that I, I know a client that agreed not to get documentation what the vendor on what the vendor has delivered. That is asking for problems. Does it make sense for an SAP client or probably any ERP client to hire a consultant to assist in drafting the contract? Yeah, I I, I think it does. And he, here's what I see where I think it's really successful, okay? You, you wanna hire someone, an attorney that's got substantive experience dealing with these types of scenarios, okay? Both on the front end and the back end, the front end being the contract negotiation and ideally somebody that's got litigation experience in this space. Um, but I would then hire a consultant to help you negotiate some of the more business oriented terms in that contract because there's certain things that these attorneys don't focus on. Okay. We focus on the legal terms and conditions in these agreements, the limitations of liability, just the warranties, the remedies, and we very much know what's legally permissible, what's industry standard, but you know, how much users should cost and whether you're getting a good deal or a bad deal, that's really not something that, that we would know. Um, but I think there's a lot of benefit in hiring a company that, that does know that. And they can say, okay, well, on this SAP deal, you know, your mix of users and modules, you should be getting a 30% discount off the list. And there are companies that do that. We work with them. Yeah. You know, I've got, I've got a question here that just came in. It says, it's a, it's a very broad generalization, but what percentage of time do plaintiffs prevail at trial and what percentage get resolved prior to trial? 
um, goes along with your point regarding avoiding litigation whenever practical. That, that, that's a, that is a, a pretty broad question, and I think it's probably you know, impossible to answer, but I will tell you, you this, just generally, that you know, most, most cases settle. Okay, it's very unusual for most of these cases to actually go to trial in today's environment. It's just, it's just not the way it, it, it is anymore. Right? I mean, 30 years ago, I think you file a lawsuit, you're gonna, you're gonna be in front of a judge. Today, most cases will settle. Um, but you know, having said that, you know, a lot of cases don't settle. And if there isn't going to be a case that settles, it's in this environment. Because again, there's so much blame to go around. People get entrenched in their positions and you know, there's a lot of emotion and, and money that's being spent. The stakes are very high, and people don't always think logically on, on both sides. You know, no vendor wants to have its name, you know, uh, drawn through the mud uh, with a fraud allegation, um, and they're going to fight that. So, you know, these these cases I think are more likely to go to litigation than some other cases. But but generally, I will say that um, most cases settle, um, and they settle for a variety of reasons and on a variety of bases. Um, and it's really hard to say, you know, what percentage that go to trial actually prevail. Um, it, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's challenging. I think, I think as an attorney, you know, one of, one of the things I will say is if, if we end up in a courtroom at trial, in some ways, you know, that's a loss for the client. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather come up with a creative settlement so that we avoid the time and expense of a trial. Yeah, you could argue that it's it's zero percent, zero percent of that prevail <laughs> because no one, no one wins usually in these. Uh, situations. We're here playing a clip with Marcus Harris talking about the top four lessons of ERP contracting. We have a lot more to cover. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 111. We're here playing you a clip with Marcus Harris talking about the top four lessons of contracting within ERP implementations. Okay, well, kind of going with that question um, and providing a little bit more you know granularity to that to that response, I think you know even with the best facts, um, if you've got the best case, if I had to put a percentage on it, you know, I would say that you know if we take your case to ten juries, um, there's a twenty percent likelihood that you're going to prevail, okay? Um, you know, so I think that's that's a problem. You know, there's there's a um, an eighty percent chance uh, that possibly you're not going to. And I know I know I think there's a typo in this. It's actually supposed to be the other way around. So I think if we take it to to, to ten juries, I think it's likely that eight are not going to believe you. Okay, um, and two are going to believe you. So this the odds are stacked against you. And the reason for that 
is really because of the complexity of these cases. Um, and unfortunately, you're probably not gonna have the best facts. And I think the reasons for that are, if there's blame to go around, and certainly the contract that you have um, is not as good as, as you think it is. But I think, you know, fundamentally, you know, what, what does success in this scenario look like to you, okay? Um, and I think that's a better way to measure, and I think Eric kind of touched on this, you know, whether you're successful or not. You know, there's a lot of reasons to sue somebody, okay? And winning at trial isn't necessarily the only reason to do it. Um, you, may, you may very well want to recover monetary damages, okay? You want to get all the money that you paid back. You're going to want to get, um, you know, your indirect and consequential um, damages, your lost profits, and those types of things. And you very well may be successful. But you know, one of the bases for, for, for settling could be, you know, let's, let's continue this relationship. Let's get a discount on the services or let's get a discount on, on the software um, or let's get them to pay for the replacement system um, and the replacement consulting services that we would need to get rid of this you know, software that's not meeting our needs. Um, so you know, I think it's, it's incumbent really on you to, to try to be creative if you find yourself in this situation because you know, success, like I said, is, is just not guaranteed. I think the, the deck is stacked against you and you know, winning a trial, well, that's great. You know, there, there are, are more guaranteed ways to come out ahead um, short of taking the whole thing all the way to trial. You may have to get to the courts, courthouse steps before you get to a settlement, but I think settling it and taking you know, control of the situation and, and determining what your fate is actually gonna be uh, you know, by offering some sort of a settlement is in, is in some ways preferable to rolling the dice and, and, and having a jury uh, decide your fate. Yeah. You know, let, let, it, let us know if you have any questions about anything that we've talked about. There's, I, I think, again, you know, this, this is really uh, a session that probably could go on for another hour where we could get really into the weeds on, you know, some of, some of the claims that we would bring, some of the, the responses to those claims that we see, creative ways to get around them. There's a lot to talk about. And this, because of the online nature, was a little bit of an abbreviated session because, because of the format. So there's a lot more to talk about. If you have any questions, feel free to chat us um, or to uh, send us an email, call us, what, you know, what, whatever our contact information is right there. And there's a couple of questions that are starting to come in now, Marcus, we can jump into now. Um, but here's a really good one that, that I know Nor you touched on in past sessions where we've had more time. Maybe we can get to it here too. Is, is, isn't the point of the blueprint to validate what both the vendor and client agree is being delivered? What are your thoughts on that and how often does that become an issue or, you know, what have you seen with that component? Yeah, I, you know, I do. And I, I kind of have conflicting issues about this blueprint process and the way that it relates to the contractual process. Um, because, you know, I think, and, and Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but, you know, I think it's unlikely that a vendor before signing a contract is going to go into a full-blown blueprint process with you. And that's where I would actually like to see it happen. Um, you know, as much detail as, as you can get to put into those contracts is, is really the ideal situation, right? I mean, I want to know, um, you know, what all these milestones are, what are the deliverables, what are the specifications for those deliverables so I can put it into the contract beforehand. Because for me, the contract really is kind of the meeting of the minds where everybody comes together and sets the proper expectations. And then, you know, the blueprint is just kind of a documentation of where we all think we are, but unfortunately it doesn't always work out that way. Yeah. We, there's actually an expert witness case we're involved with right now where that 
blueprint issue was a, is a core part of the project. And what ended up happening in this case is the, the company agreed to pay for the blueprint and but not commit to the software because they wanted to make sure and validate that the software could do everything they needed to and it's a fairly complex business. And uh, what ended up happening is the software vendor and the system integrator ended up short-circuiting or shortcutting the blueprint and saying, well, hey, we'll give you this big steep discount if you just commit now, even before you're done with the blueprint. And by the way, don't worry about the blueprint. Everything's fine. Software works great. And they ended up doing that. And then they got to the end of the blueprint and realized, oh, wait, this doesn't quite work the way we think it will. And they got, what'd you call it, Marcus, the string along the... Uh, string along fraud, yeah. The string along fraud is kind of like the status was green, green, green until they get to the end and, or toward the end and realize this is not going to work at all. So that it's a good point. I mean, I think more companies, I think back to a point you made yesterday, Marcus, and I think it's worth noting here is right now companies have more leverage in their relationships with software vendors than they may ever have. And they probably have ever had, at least in recent decades. And I think they need to act accordingly. I mean, I think a, a lot of times these big system integrators at big vendors say, hey, we're, you know, vendor ABC, we're massive um, and you're just a small little fish in the pond. And therefore this is what, how we want things to work. I mean, you have the leverage now, especially now. So I think it's really important for companies to say, push back on things like that and say, look, we're going to commit to a blueprint phase to validate that this works and we'll pay for it. And maybe you end up losing some money if you determine that at the end of blueprint, it's still not a good fit. Then that's a lot better loss. And it's a good insurance policy in some ways than committing to a big giant implementation. And to Daryl's point earlier today too, um, system integrators and vendors are, are pushing harder now than I, I think I've ever seen them push because they're, they're hungry for business and they're in, I would consider it a semi-dangerous spot right now as it relates to you as a buyer. So you just have to recognize you're gonna get a lot of pressure to do things the wrong way and to do things that benefit them. Um, but just remember, you may not feel like it, but you do have all the leverage in the relationship, even if you're a smaller company um, we're dealing with some small companies internationally now that are negotiating with NetSuite um, as an example. Um, big, massive, you know, owned by Oracle, big, massive company, but they're, we're getting very good concessions for them that we couldn't get, you know, even just 90 days ago, um, even for these smaller companies. So I don't know what your thoughts are, Marcus, but that leverage, I think, is really important to remind everyone here that you, you have it right yeah. now. Uh, you have more leverage today than you've ever had, just like, like you said, Eric. And I think you know, when, when that leverage disappears is, is once you've signed on the bottom line, okay? So once you've got a mutually executed contract, there's, there's no reason to court you anymore, right? It's all, it's all over. Um, and I think if you, you've got to come up with some creative solutions to mitigate your risk, because in that scenario with the blueprint, I mean, I think you know, your client in that scenario uh, would have been well served to do, have done kind of a preliminary contract for just the blueprint phase, and then if it worked, to sign the full the full blown contract. Because right now, you know, you're you're in it, right? You've signed the contract. You've got the contractual obligation. There's a term, and you know we talked about yesterday when negotiating and renegotiating. If you didn't negotiate the termination provision of that contract properly, you're stuck for a three year or four year term. And you now you've got a product that doesn't even work. We see that all the time, and particularly with Oracle. You know, um, you know. Oracle is notoriously difficult to deal with, and NetSuite now is just the same. I mean, they, you know, their in-house counsel is is absolutely ridiculous. They're aggressive. We got a lawsuit going against them right now, and you know, believe you me, they will they will pull all the stops to take you down. I mean, it's I, I don't even want to. It sounds like I'm being, you know, I'm exaggerating, but I'm I'm really really not. You know, there's 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 one reason 
um, that you know the the Oracle acronym stands for what it does, and it's it's really true, you know. Which yeah. if if you if if you don't know what it stands for, I won't I won't say the full thing. But you know, Oracle stand you know, one real a hole called area Larry Ellison. You know that's you know that's common common knowledge for a reason. So I haven't heard that before. I, I learn huh. new every time I present with you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, here's another one that's that's related to that, Marcus. Um, oh, where is it? Uh, okay, so at what stage of the vendor selection should the contract negotiation start? Most often companies are exhausted by the length of the selection process and itching to start, so they shorten the negotiation process. How much time should we allocate for contract negotiation? It's great. You know, it really, it really depends. You should allocate way more time than you think, okay? At one of the last stratospheres, there was somebody that was was talking about their contract negotiation process and that it should take a few days or a week. That is incredibly unrealistic in my experience. Okay, um, it's probably going to take if you're if you're really accelerated from the, the time that you get counsel involved on both sides, maybe a month, maybe two months. Um, you know, it's but it it's not a, a quick process, and it really shouldn't be. There's going to be approvals that that the vendor is going to have to get if you're doing it right. You know, they're going to have to engage other people. You're going to go through different decision makers. That's the way to do it. And ideally, you should have at least two vendors that you're negotiating with at the same time. That's how you get the best deal. You know, you can say, look, well, you know, thank, thank you very much, SAP, but NetSuite uh, is going to give me this kind of a discount or, you know, on limitation of liability, that's not what their position is. You know, or you know, whoever it is in for NetSuite Oracle. Um, that's, that's the way to do it. So I think you know, if you've got selection fatigue, um, you know, that's no, that's no excuse to, to, to short circuit the negotiation process, you know, use your attorney. They're the ones that should be, you know, spearheading that anyway, and you should be brought in strategically to help them with the business aspects of that deal and you utilize independent consultants as well. Yeah, it's a great point. And in one, just a, as a general dynamic, that's really important to be aware of for a lot of companies. We see it all the time where, you get to the end of a selection process and the momentum and the excitement for the project is as high as it's ever going to be. And people are feeling really good about the project. They feel really good about their vendor. They're excited to get started. That's all good stuff. You don't want to lose that, but it leads companies into bad decisions. They put the blinders on and they don't think about these risks or think about, you know, what about the things that could go wrong or the, the challenges we're likely to, to run into. Um, Another point, Marcus, that this is really important nuance that maybe this would be a good, a good uh, closing uh, question. It's actually two part. One's a comment, one's a question from the same person. First comment is that it's, a, it's actually a really important point. Um, on the slide early on, we had uh, some examples of failures that all coincidentally involved SAP. And the reason these big, massive, high profile failures all seem to point to SAP, sometimes Oracle, is because those are big, massive companies that are a lot more likely to be implementing SAP. Um, we found that there's not a correlation between uh, failure rates uh, among different vendors. I mean, it's all pretty consistent. All the failures have just as likely of, of having a failure as, as uh, the others. It's just that SAP has huge customers that you hear about when they fail, but you don't hear about the, you know, the mom and pop distribution company down the street that implemented a smaller vendor. Um, yeah, and that, that's a good point. There's no, there's no, the takeaway from that shouldn't be that SAP fails more than, than other companies or that the large vendors fail more. It's, it's just they get, they get the press coverage. And, you know, we, we have a lot of cases for second and third tier ERP vendors um, in our queue right now, um, just as, just as much as the large ones. So it's a, it's a, it's a mix. Um, and I think, 
to some extent, you know, there's there's maybe the, the smaller implementations are more likely to fail to some extent because I think the players are less sophisticated. Yeah. So you've got to guard against that. Yeah. Um, maybe a closing question. This is a great place to to um, leave things. Is from that same person. They also ask the question of the software license is frequently signed separately from the system integrator contract statement of work. Therefore, are we, are we saying you need to have every contract negotiated before signing any of them? So in other words, do we have to sign everything all at once or could we commit to the software and then sign the statement of work or uh, probably not vice versa, but what are your thoughts on splitting out the license agreement from the services implementation statement of work and contract? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from a practical perspective in today's environment, that, that generally happens, right? It's, it's not necessarily that you're going to use, you're going to license SAP and then use SAP's professional services to implement it. Um, no, that's not uncommon. Um, so I think s splitting them out is just reality. Um, you know, I, I think just you've got to kind of see how to play it on a case-by-case -case basis from a strategic standpoint. That's more of a negotiation kind of thing, you know. If, if uh, the vendor, the, 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 the integrator gets wind that you've already committed to, to a particular piece of software that's in their wheelhouse, you know, they, they might know that you're going to go with them and they might get more aggressive. So you know, I think you kind of play your cards close to the vest um, and figure out how you want to negotiate those contracts. From an overarching uh, perspective, legally, you know, my preference is always they have less cooks in the kitchen because you know, I want one throat to choke, right? If I'm going to litigate, I don't want to have, you know, three different integrators for three different modules and, you know, two different software companies. I can't figure out where the failure is. And if we're going to sue, you know, everybody's pointing the finger somewhere else. And that's an incredibly complicated case at that point. So I think, you know, my advice would be, you know, consolidate how you're, how you're going about this and try to use as few vendors as possible if you can. Um, it's not always something that you can do, but you know, from a legal perspective, if, if there's an issue, you know, it's going to make things much easier on the back end. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Marcus. Great conversation. Good to revisit that conversation from a while back. And uh, hopefully that was helpful to the audience as well. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to debrief and cover some follow-up points as it relates to that conversation. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 111. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. And Kyler, we just had the uh, clip that we replayed from the past uh, with Marcus Harris about the top four lessons of ERP contracting. What were some of your thoughts and takeaways after hearing that discussion again? 
Well, I think that's a great kind of back to basic um, discussion about the importance in the overall. I like how he kind of outlines what can happen in the case study um, in the beginning of that before he outlines the the lessons to say, you know, litigation is a huge deal. It can be one of the most expensive parts um, of an overall digital transformation project and can bankrupt some businesses. So it's, you know, critical to ensure that you have that step. And I think my favorite lesson that he goes through is, is your your contract is likely worse than you think it is. Um, and the importance of understanding that a standardized contract with any sort of vendor is always something that you should have evaluated for the specific relationship that you're looking for, which is why, you know, he does what he does um, to ensure that that there is opportunity for businesses to negotiate with these vendors. Because I think a lot of times that's a misconception is there's there's no way to kind of negotiate and you're kind of trapped into this contract, especially when you're seeing this evolution of a moving to a SaaS or a cloud-based model. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And he, he really explained that and unpacked that point well in that conversation for sure. Yep, definitely. And I, I think it's also great when he talked about there's likely faults on both sides. And you kind of alluded to that when you were talking about the most complex digital transformation failure um, you experienced at the beginning of the episode is there many times it is not just one party's fault, even though it might be, you know, one party is liable or was negligent. Um, but there's oftentimes an organiz- a fundamental organizational issue. And if you go in with a broken organization, you're already, you know, at, um, at a weakness point that will break much more easily unless you have a strong organizational culture and you've really assessed the readiness of your organization to go in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. You need to have that understanding and alignment before you get too far into your project or else you are going to run into those headwinds that are inevitable when you don't have it. Absolutely. Um, and I'm going to drop just in the comments here, wherever you're watching some videos with Marcus Harris, I was actually thinking during your conversation with when we referenced him earlier, um, that we need a, a Marcus Harris playlist on our website or on our YouTube channel um, as well. So I'll see if we can't pull that together because he has so much great content and so important um, in his work of helping businesses look through their contracting um, and really engaging an independent expert to understand what are you actually looking at? What are the risks here? What is the total cost of ownership, which can be very tricky um, to kind of establish? And and what rights do you have per kind of your theme of the episode as the organization when going into a a contracting model? I know you mentioned in the live stream that um, you had seen a business or we work with a business that actually had in their contracting language that, you know, they controlled the entire project, which to me is just incredible um, that that, but that happens and they can be very sneaky in putting it in there. So it's the importance of that oversight and due diligence of understanding the contracting process. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Very, very well said. And some, some good points that, that he brings for us to think about. And hopefully that opening segment or that the second segment with the uh, customer rights and responsibilities combined with the discussion with Marcus around the top four lessons uh, in contracting. Hopefully that gives people a sort of a head start and uh, some things to think about as they get started on their journey. So a good discussion there today. And I want to thank Marcus for his uh, contribution to that episode. Both he, he was contributing in the segments where we were talking about customer rights and responsibilities. And then obviously he was also in the third segment about uh, ERP contracting. So thanks to Marcus as well for being uh, and behind the scenes guest in today's <laughs> today's episode. 
So appreciate that. And I want to thank the audience for the great questions and the, and the great uh, participation. And, and now, as always, thank you, Kyler, for another great episode. Uh, reminder, you can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, audio podcast platforms throughout the world. The podcast streams every Wednesday to uh, the video platforms, YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, becomes live on the, on the audio po- podcast platform. So uh, thank you everyone for joining here today. We'll look forward to seeing you next time on Transformation Ground Control. 